Kia everybody, what's up? It is Rebet. Uh, welcome to Rebet Live. Uh, joined by the bro Mace. How are you, mate? Doing well. How are you? Uh, I was I was going to ask the first question to kick off. I was actually going to say, what's it like waking up in September and not being at Snow Park at the Burden Open in oh. New Zealand? And, and both of us being, what, thousands of miles away in the Northern Hemisphere looking from afar. You know, it, it feels like a different lifetime ago, you know, the more that I, uh, the, the longer that I'm away from professional snowboarding, it, it sometimes seems like it never happened, like it was all a dream, you know? Yeah. Is it, what's it like to wake up not being in the, because I don't know whether, you know, we're probably somewhat similar age, we went through a similar world. When you wake up and it's not what it was, does it feel and I think maybe it's the only thing that maybe happens with age or with time, exactly to your point, you know, you'll see an image, you'll see something, and it just like kind of transcends you back to a, a spot that was. What's it like waking up in 2020, um, not putting your snowboard boots on at 6am, having to hike the pipe to practice back-to-back teams? <laughs> you know, it's... Um... Yeah, I think like the you know my my mindset has definitely changed. I mean, I think that uh, you know snowboarding uh, professionally for so long, you get so used to performing under pressure. Um, there's so many people, so many moving parts. You know, from the team managers to the team riders you're with to the rental cars to the rental houses and the traveling and um everything like that that it's um i think when you're in it you know you just sort of feed off it and you just sort of thrive on that pressure and you know for me um you know the majority of my success was i guess that i'm i'm known for was in competition snowboarding so i feel like i really th- learned to thrive there but um you know now if I, now it's like and I, you know, I'm grateful for the for the time that I wasn't snowboarding because I feel like it really was like a really good era because it wasn't the triple corks and all the craziness to where like I'm watching snowboarding now and I'm just like these dudes could literally die like doing this. Um, yeah, there was risk involved when we were doing it. I think that it, for me, it was always you know calculated risk and 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 doubles and you know the size of half pipes and jumps were like just kind of starting getting bigger and things like that um so not to stray too far away from the question but um yeah i think that um you know now it's just it's it's a lot different you know i think when i was traveling and and stuff i craved normalcy you know i wanted to have a dog i wanted to have a girlfriend that wasn't mad at me for being gone all the time i wanted to be home more than two days a month you know when those days weren't postal address and coat hangers that was my two i wanted a postal address and coat hangers yeah my my back my bag for you and it was the stupidest thing but my mum always got pissed because I'd be, you know, doing doing my thing and, and should always be getting my mail because I'd be, you know, in one spot for, you know, um, I, just, I was never in one place for more than 90 days and maybe, you know, 10 years or so. And just normalcy, you know, trying to find the new balance of, I guess, what normal could be. And Absolutely. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And I think, uh, I think, you know, I, I, I loved travel and I loved all that stuff for so long, but eventually, you know, I did get burnt out and, you know, there was a point where like, it wasn't fun anymore and it did feel like a job and it didn't, you know, and I think that that's, you know, something that that I'm aware of now, 
but uh and now that i had and i just wanted that normalcy now that i have the normalcy and now that i do work you know tuesday through saturday i'm off sundays and mondays i'm like damn i miss that traveling stuff you know like i miss not having an agenda and and uh, not having to uh schedule time off and obviously uh the money was pretty good too so <laughs> but it's, it's funny when you're when you're in it you kind of want out and then when you're out you you miss the the glitz like i remember wifey was saying to me you know i said oh when i was snowboarding again and, and or i'd be obviously not as as much as you know probably yourself probably i guess about two three hundred days a year whatever it was and then i couldn't do i don't know what it was, it was like i don't know back seven or something and i got a bit i was a bit down and i said to wifey i was like man i could i used to be able to do whatever and she goes you could but your life progresses and you if you gave everything else up just to do that you wouldn't have everything else in your life and you needed to have a bit more perspective on you know the other stuff so yeah it, it's funny when you're when you're in it you want out and when you're out you want in yeah absolutely and and um you know i think that um with that too it's like you know you create such a community around being a snowboarder i mean no matter where i, I mean even when i, I uh you know, traveled to New Zealand for the first time, you know, when I was 17, I mean, I, I was met with such a, you know, friendliness, you know what I mean? By, by the other Burton team riders and they're from down there, like the Jackaway brothers and, you know, the Allen brothers and, and, you know, the Mitch Brown and yourself and, you know, and even people that didn't ride for the respective companies that I was riding for. It was just anywhere you went, there was always such a community. And, um, you know, when you stop, you know, when you stop, um for me it wasn't really like i chose to stop i mean i got fired by my sponsors and um you know i kind of was forcibly had to change directions but you know when that when that phone stops ringing man i mean it's, it's kind of a it's kind of a sad day you know and i and i definitely it kind of devastated me you know what i mean i definitely let it let it get to me and um mm -hmm. you know i didn't realize how much of a privilege that was to be able to have such a tight community in snowboarding um you know, through social media and stuff like that, I do keep in touch with quite a bit of people in the industry and stuff. Just drop people DMs and say what's up and say, hey, man, I was thinking about you today and just how are you doing and blah, blah, blah. But um, in terms of the camaraderie and stuff, you know, I miss that. You know, I, I think that's one of the things that I probably took a little bit for granted and thought, oh, I'll, I'll always have this and I'll always have a community around me. And, and on some level I do and what I do now, but it's not nearly uh, the, the, the common bond of, of snowboarding and just all that you know the like-mindedness um that that i miss um nowadays so but it was a i think it's a, a time too like i've had a couple of these chats recently with with crew from the snowpark era of the age of work because you're what 33 now what do you think i'm almost almost 33 yeah in november three um when we think about i'm only 35 so it's you know same kind of boat where snowboarding was going with the launch of say 2004 5 with the launch of snowpark coming out into the world and then with the progression coming into the olympics and just this whole the momentum around um the world of snowboarding was having so much cash thrown at it you know nike started throwing the big bucks get you in the mix jossie in the mix all the rest of it you fast forward another 10 years recession pops all that money a bunch of that money disappears a bunch of that whole world just ev evaporates there's no more snowboard bums living for a 100 bucks a week and wanaka sleeping on buddy's couches <laughs> it's only like unless you're in the high performance program you can sort of get in the mix i think the timing of our age to the industry hit a perfect apex 
for a bunch of great stuff that happened. And I think if, like I've said to multiple people, if I had my same talent 10 years later, there's no way in hell I'd, A, want to do that shit, but flipping triple corking off a 100-foot jump to try and pay the bills, stuff that. So I think I don't, it's, it's weird with timing. You fast forward a, another decade, I don't think, you know, many people wouldn't even be in the same spots that they were, you know? Yeah, I mean, that's a great point. Um, I th- I've, I've had the same type of thoughts, you know, I, I look back and even, you know, I talked to my dad about this a lot cause my dad was kind of, you know, he was the one in my family that started snowboarding first, you know, in, in 90, I want to say 91, he started, I started in 93 and, um, you know, back then it was like, you know, snowboarding wasn't even really a thing, you know, in my home mountain, he had a couple handful of guys, definitely no young kids like me and my sister Molly were definitely the first like kind of young cats that were out on the hill but you know if you were you know in the early 2000s if you were just like decent at snowboarding i mean you were making 50k a year i mean you were you know had a couple of shots in a part you know uh man like i made royalties off the burton custom i made two dollars a board off every custom that was sold and then the workload that i did in order to get that with heike sortha and mods johnson we basically sat in roundtable meetings and approved graphics oh yeah we like that graphic we like that color you know whatever so back then you had salary you had uh, travel budget. You had photo and video incentives for TV, magazines, all that stuff. Uh, you had um, snowboard royalties. I mean, there was so much cash flow coming in uh, for me that I didn't know what to do with. Um, yep. That's a whole other conversation. But um, I think, yeah, the timing of it, I mean, because it's, you know, it was relatively you know, some of it for, for me was, was good timing. It was good luck. It was hard work. It was kind of a combination of those things, but you know, the ceiling of what was being done, you know, there was a couple guys like T rice and arrow and some of these guys doing double flips on jumps. And it was definitely mind blowing. Like, we're like, Oh my God, these guys are doing like double back rodeos on jumps. There was like a couple dudes that had done like double flips in the pipe, but it hadn't really like caught on yet when that, you know, shifted and around, 2009 2010 when the pipes got yep. bigger and the jumps got the, the slope style courses got a little more creative and dudes started throwing doubles then it became like industry standard and if you weren't up to that um you're kind of like you know lame i guess and, and then and then now it's like uh because because man i know what i used to make at x games for getting 10th place i mean you get you get like a thousand bucks you know what I mean? It's like, cool like you know pat on the ass thanks for the gas money and the and the maybe half my airfare and now I'm sure that hasn't changed much. If anything, it's probably less um, because I, I do know that, um, you know, conversations with my old agent, Steve Ruff, um, you know, when I got to my, when I, when my last deals ran up with Nike and K2 and, and Rockstar and I was trying to, you know, say, all right, man, we got, we got to get new contracts. Like, you know, I'm only, I was only uh, 26 at the time. He was just like, it was hard for him to even get deals for people that were going to the Olympics to even get totally. like, even get any deals you know 30 grand 40 grand i mean that that was like there's no way board and he yeah (laughs) you know scotty james perfect example like the best half pipe rider arguably the last five years um riding a blank snowboard i'm I'm thinking in my head like how the hell does this dude not have like a six-figure board deal like i i mean i know maybe he does and i just don't know about it but from what i've seen and from talking to people like Scotty Lego, who's who's I'm close to, it's like, you know, 70% of these dudes in the pipe contest or in the contest in general don't even have a board sponsor paying them. Maybe they're you're getting a board. Maybe you're getting free stuff, yeah. which is 
you know, it's cool to be able to cut that, you know, have that cost. But if you're, you know, if you're making decent money and you don't have a board deal, like, you know, you might as well just ride whatever snowboards you want at that point and, you know, just ride it off. Best, right? But it was so funny, the money side of it, because I remember um, in the early days when I was, I was on Solomon, David Benedict and stuff had come out to New Zealand. They were telling me about, and Scotty Arnold was there, Josh Dirksen, and they were talking about their split. And I think he was getting, I think, like, because they were talking about Devin Walsh's deal, he was saying he was like 50 bucks a board, but no other salary. But he was selling thousands of these boards, right? And they were just going out the flipping door. Um, and locally at the time, if you were doing back-to-back sevens, you were getting paid cash money, you know, but to get to the Olympics and be winning, you'd think you'd be on flipping Wheaties boxes and shit. And then you find out these dudes aren't even getting anything and it's kind of this surreal thing where the uh, well in New Zealand anyway I know that after the 08 recession hit and then a bunch of the money all shifted like Burton in New Zealand went from you know 13 staff down to t- one just just to just J everything else and all the other brands went to Australia and there was all of a sudden all the money dried up and so everyone who was on you know a bit of travel budget and photo incentives they all kind of went out the door and next thing you know it's just dry but then snowboarders wake up exactly to probably to your point they're killing it they're crushing it getting their things going on and then there's just no cash so i think it was the speed at which it dried up was i don't even think riders because i guess you know you're drinking their own kool-aid in the bubble of your normal because you just think you're killing it you think the kept checks keep rolling but it's kind of the realities of i guess the commercial pressure comes into the real world of like shit ain't selling people ain't buying you got no money next it's kind of it's tough yeah. mentally because you don't even think about the money side, right? No, I mean you really don't. And um, you know, for me personally, I mean, I definitely thought that that uh, in my mind, like when I you know I turned pro at fifteen. Well, I mean, I say I turned pro. Like I don't know if I really had like any clout until around you know the Olympics or whatever. Yeah. But I would say like the first check that I made was when I was fifteen. That my first season on tour riding professionally, I, I didn't really have any deals paying me, but I was making prize money. You know, I made about, I don't know, 15, 20 grand in prize money that year. So to me, uh, that was, I was making money. So I, you know, consider myself professional, but I, but I wouldn't consider like, the, I don't think the industry maybe consider me professional. You know, I think the way that it's tiered and like skateboarding, for instance, I mean, you know, you, you go pro and it's like a big deal, you know, these companies, you know, plan B or, or almost or whatever, whatever they, they kind of girl skateboards, they, they have a big, it's a big deal that they, they you know, debut someone's pro pro models, uh, skateboard. Like it's an official thing, you know, um, with snowboarding, it's just like a kid can go win $200 with the contest. He's like, I'm a pro snowboarder. So I think it, it, it gets a little watered down and I'm definitely someone that was a part, a part of that because, you know, I figured cause I started making money, I'm pro, you know? Um, so when, when I did turn pro, I kind of figured, okay, I'm going to just put everything into this, uh, not going to worry about college or, you know, I'll graduate high school or whatever, but you know, I'm going to do this until I'm 30. That was like, for whatever reason, that was the number in my head because I think a lot of the guys that I looked up to like Terrier and, you know, Jamie Lynn and, you know, like your David Benedicts. I mean, these guys were over 30 and they were still making a living snowboarding. And so I, I, I figure, well, you know, I might not be like one of the greats, like these guys who are arguably like staples and snowboarding everyone looks up to you and always will but maybe like i could definitely make it till i'm 30 so to get it kind of prematurely cut at 26 for me which you know four years is a long span um you know i was i was you know i was living a i was living an expensive lifestyle man you know drove a bmw you know had a couple cars you know lived in lived in uh you know not not a cheap bmw an expensive you know m3 you know what i mean living in hollywood 
uh, was kind of, you know, just more or less kind of taking care of my girlfriend at the time financially. You know, I was kind of like your your snowboard MC Hammer. You know what I mean? Like I was, <laughs> I had a lot of my chips were kind of spread out, man. You know, I was going to Vegas a couple times a month. That credit card oh. bill. So so when uh, you know, for me when you know my contracts all got cut within like a ninety day. 90 like like about three to four month period you know like i knew that my you know in my mind my negotiations are coming up but in in their mind you know nike was you know i'm sure that um kind of like you mentioned like i I don't know if i don't know the specifics but i'm assuming that nike wasn't getting their roi on all the money they put into snowboarding they made five million i think out of the whole snow division from what i was told they made five million dollars but it wasn't enough. So they were like, stuff it and bounce. Yeah. Yeah. And that's and after they'd come through. Cause remember they'd signed Jossie. They'd got him on. Cause he was number three on Oakley. They got him number one. They got you. They came in heavy and they just were just buying up everything. They did the, Oh, that's right. You had the RZA collab. Like they went, they went pissing around, but then it was just weird. Cause someone told me that and I said, so they're making $5 million, but it's not enough money. And they're just gassing the whole thing. They're like, yeah. I'm like, yeah. I mean, but who knows, who knows off of making 5 million, like how much they put in, but, you know, so I was in the beginning of those Nike cuts. You know what I mean? Yeah. I, at the time, I did I did not know Nike was pulling out of the industry. You know, at all. Like, I mean, because because I knew a couple of my friends had just re-signed contracts. Like Matt Ladley had just signed a deal or was about to, and so I thought like, oh, oh, woe is me kind of deal. So I was I was just devastated, man. And then uh, you know, three months later, K two calls me, and they were just kind of casually. And, it, and it's funny because I think that we you know, as snowboarders, we give so much of ourselves to the brands, you know, we give so much of our, we're like sticker. We're like, yeah, K2 rules, Burton. Oh man, they're the best. Like we're just, you know, we sign the deal and we're just like that, you know, it could be freaking Snickers. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, I eat Snickers every day. Like we're, we're just so heavily. Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. We're just so pushing these brands and stuff. But I think from a loyalty perspective, I think from them, you know, it's just business. And, and uh, I see that now, you know, I see that now being a little more business minded, but at the time I thought that, you know, these people owe me something, you know, they love me. Of course, they're going to resign me all this stuff. I think that there's also the pressure of, there's that pressure of, uh, and this is something that I'm glad that I don't have to deal with anymore is kind of the image aspect is trying to, you know, be marketable and being cool and kind of being, you know, being someone, you know, not everyone has the marketability of like a Danny Davis, you know? Like I love Danny and he's great for snowboarding. He's one of my best friends. And I just, you know, I can't say enough of how proud of, of the, you know, figure that he's become in snowboarding because most of the people, you know, know who Danny Davis is and he's a great representation for snowboarding. You know what I'm saying? And I'm so, I'm so proud to, to like, have seen his career evolved and stuff like that, but not everybody has that marketability, you know what I mean? And so when, when, and I don't know if it was a, you know, a combination of that, I wasn't performing well anymore Cause I really wasn't, I wasn't doing great. I mean, it was, it had been a while since I made like a contest final. I was definitely kind of, you know, slipping in that aspect and um, just keeping up with that curve of progression too. Like looking back, like, I mean, I was definitely one of the ones that didn't move as heavily into the double corks. I was trying to stay relevant with my style and kind of like prideful on that. I was like, no, that's, that's whack. Like I don't want to compromise, you know, the smoothness and kind of the fluidity of my own riding just to add in another flip into like, my run or like the way that I ride. And I just, I don't know. I just kind of rested on that. And, you know, I guess it kind of backfired or whatever. Maybe that's not, you know, the entire and the entirety of it, but, um, 
but you know, the long and short of it is, is that, um, you know, my sponsors cut me within, you know, about three months of each other. And I went from making like, I don't know, something like 30 K a month to making nothing, you know? And so it hits quick. Cause I remember when, does, man. I, th I think it was in Sean had learned them in spring. He'd brought them down to New Zealand and it was at the burden open. I think is where he first did that the first double in competition. And I remember as soon as he did it, I was like, I think if this becomes the new normal, basically, if you don't have doubles, you're out because everyone's just yeah. going to have a double. They'll go fr um, front nine, back nine, front dub 10, finish off, done. Thanks for coming, whatever. <laughs> and within the space of probably two years, it, I, cause I would obviously, I'm, you know, friends with all the judges and stuff and just hearing them, they were like, some of them are ugly, but if they're doing it, we have to score it. And within two years, everyone had a double in their bag. And then it became this thing of like, if you were riding in pipe, you either had one or you didn't. Slope style felt like it was a bit, a little bit later to the party. I remember, um, yeah, when Seb Toots and stuff first did one and it was like a big deal and then it became like kind of a bit more of a regular thing. But it, with the half pipe, it definitely felt like if you had one, you're in. If you didn't, it was kind of like whatever. Right? I don't think anyone, did anyone ever win a gold without doing a double since then? I don't know. I don't think so. I mean, uh, I think that, you know, at, from, from 2000, I think, you know, the year that I went to the Olympics in 2006 was the last Olympics that had no double spins, you know, and that was also like, you know, by 2010, you had the 22 foot half pipes. You had, um, you know, Sean was doing dubs, um, you know, Lego was doing doubles and everything like that. And I think that, you know, I, I like that, like, as of late, like, it's kind of, it's kind of moved away from that, you know, like, I feel like it is kind of trying to move back to, um a little bit more style but it's like it's hard to be stylish doing like a 1620 you know what i mean it's just it's yeah, hard yeah. you know I, that again going back to what we were talking about when, when we started about just being in that era of like style being everything like i'm so stoked to have been a part of that era of snowboarding mm -hmm. um i would go to half pipe contest and abe teeter would take off his shirt and he would do freaking you know what i mean 15 foot japan like frontside three and like you know alley-oops and stuff and like you know, style, yeah. would be doing crazy stuff and like you know Kier dylan would take his shirt i don't know what the deal is with people taking their shirt off but i don't know people took he, their shirt he, off he had the mctwist <laughs> though he had the headphones the thing, with the durag with the mctwist yeah he knew, I mean, what, he knew what he was doing yeah um so that was just so cool for me to be a part of that era of snowboarding and stuff and i would say that um i'm not you know i'm not i'm not i'm i miss the the um, atmosphere but i'm not like jealous of like the contest these days i mean it doesn't look as um that was definitely like the golden era man i mean it's definitely moved away from from that and um that's okay and everything is you know changes and, and progression is going to be inevitable in anything that you do so um you know, I'll still tune in and watch the webcast on the contest and stuff. But I mean, I don't get like as hyped up as I used to when I used to have to yeah. say sit out a contest or something because of an injury and like I'd watch the webcast from, you know, locks open or something and just be like, oh my God, that was so sick. Like, you know, yeah, it gets a bit disconnected. I was going to ask with the Olympic stuff because you were, I think, young, one of the youngest, maybe I think to, to, to get there. Did you take, was it, did you beat Ross out or JJ? Who, who, whose spot did you take? Um, so I, took it, so I took out Ross. So I took Ross. Well, you know, I neither, um, actually. Um, so I, <clears throat> so I was like a, 
you know, I was, you know, Snowboarder Magazine came out with this, uh, you know, Olympic issue, like the in, in 2005. And it was basically like how you look at sports betting, you know, how they do odds yeah. and favorites and stuff. Like I, I was this, so they basically played favorites and odds as to who they thought would be the four spots on the half pipe team. And um, I was like, not even in the mix, you know, like I was, I was on the list, but I was not on the list to, they were like, oh, whatever, 10 to one or something or it was some bullshit like that. And it, it, it totally pissed me off because I, I had come off like somewhat of a, of a heater season in 2005. That was like the first season that I'd really like started to actually put some results together. And I was kind of starting to make, make it imprint a little bit. And so I was, you know, I was personally really happy with my ride. It came down to New Zealand for the summer. I like busted my ass off, learned some stuff, was feeling like really tuned up for, um, for the next season. And, uh, so I ended up making the team right after Sean. Sean made the team first, and um, I made the team. Uh, is, they take your two best results from, like, the five qualifiers. So Sean won the first Grand Prix. He won the second Grand Prix. I got, like, 20th in the first Grand Prix. I got second in the second Grand Prix, and I got second in the third Grand Prix. We had a little break. It was Christmas time, and then we went to Mount Bachelor for the third qualifier. And so I had two seconds by the third contest was over. So when we went to the last two – in New Jersey, the only two really solidified people on the team were me and Sean. And then the last two to get on were Danny Cass and Andy Finch. But it was between like Danny, Andy, Keir Dillon, Ross. It was, it was, and like Elijah Teeter. It was, it was like, there was like five or six guys that it was really kind of between. And so, um, I kind of, you know, they were kind of telling me to like, the coaches were kind of telling me to like go and like kind of not ride well on purpose, sort of, you know, since I already had like, and I was like, oh man, I'm going to try to go and do good. I just had that mindset. Like yeah, Sean yeah. kind of had that mindset where like, even if Sean qualified, he was still going to go and, and win. I think Sean won all the qualifiers like that yeah. whole year. Um, I remember that first, <clears throat> that first uh, Grand Prix in New Jersey. I was like cleaning out. It was at nighttime at this resort called Mountain Creek. It's this real kind of, it's this real kind of shitty resort in New Jersey. It's fun, but it's like, um, yeah, it's kind of sketchy. So it was funny that these are the last two contests, and the pipe was just like bulletproof. It was you know barely eighteen feet. I mean, it was small. And I was I was cleaning out my goggles and before my run, and I was kind of feeling that like drop in my like blood sugar. So like I had one of those Nature Valley granola bars, aka crumbs everywhere. Um, you know, it's just crumbs everywhere. And I put my goggles on and I drop in. And when I, when I was eating the granola bar, my goggles were upside down and they were kind of sitting on the top, the top sheet of my snowboard and the crumbs like got into my goggles. So when I went up to do my first like big spin in my run, I got granola, you know, granola bar crumbs <laughs> in my eyes. And this is like my third, this is like my third hit of my run. So I go blind in like the middle of a uh, frontside 1080. And I just completely open up and my hands are up all crazy. And then I kind of try to finish out the run. And so I'm, so yeah, so that, and then I fell on my second run. So I, I actually like was really like, no, I'm going to try to like kill it. And so, um, but I didn't, I had the granola deal. And then, um, you know, in the next contest I fell as well. And so I think they're like Ross was almost in there and, we, and, you know, a lot of people wanted to get Ross in because, you know, he would have, that would have been his third Olympics and stuff. And he was kind of, you know, he was kind of, he was still riding really good, but I think like he was kind of slowing down a, a little bit in terms of maybe switching, um, you know, kind of where, he, what direction he was going in and stuff. So Ross came, Ross still came to Italy, but he came as like an alternate. So, and, and then Andy Finch came <clears throat> on the fourth spot and um, at the Olympics, Andy like broke his wrist, 
broke his ankle and still rode in the contest. I mean, he, he was like, you know, he, he was like, this might be my only chance to like ever ride in the Olympics, which it was. And like, I do yeah. applaud him for this man. And, and he's such a, he was always such a fierce competitor, man. It was a really tough time to be in competitive half pipe riding because you not only had Sean, but you had these other guys like Andy Finch and Steve Fisher and, and Keir Dillon and Ross and JJ. And it was like, it was like Danny Davis and, and Pat Moore even. And so you show up to a contest and you'd see like this blockbuster list of riders in the contest <clears throat> and they have, you know, 16 spots in finals. And it's like the finals were like, always so stacked with people. And so, so like from, from my um, and being someone that was relatively new on the contest circuit, I was like, well, how am I going to even like do, <laughs> do good in this contest? Like everybody with that though because what would happen i remember at that stage there was a phase out of the older crew who were seeing all the momentum come into snowboarding with the big money them being at the kind of the the tail end of kind of their i guess careers but also there was a step up because right then when you look at i remember like ross powers's front 10 that he had wasn't grabbed like the full way like there was a different style of how they were doing a lot of their spins so it kind of felt like there was a disconnect between the age and the old school way of spinning versus the new grabbing more further around going you know front cork tens or whatever it was so i kind of felt like they were it was almost the older crew were kind of probably to, to your point around andy this was their last shot they really had to try and go in because they could see they'd been trying the years to try and get there and all of a sudden there's this great momentum you know then the sean white train comes in brings in all that other sort of heat and the energy too so i think there's probably a a tension with those older riders of coming to the new school and then from I guess our era, then it went to the, to the double. So it kind of felt like there was kind of a few different stages. So you, you probably lucky you got to see it at, at both of them, right? The young buck coming up. Yeah, and- absolutely. For sure. I mean, it was, you know, the, the big deal back then, you know, specifically around the Olympic time was, you know, back to back spins, you know, doing, doing spin front side and, and switch and stuff like that. And, you know, and then it was like, then, and then grabbing became a really important thing. And then, you know, initially, like I think fists, like in, 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 in world cups and stuff, I think early on when I was doing them, you had to have a mandatory two straight airs in your run. And then they've switched that to one straight air. And so there was like different rules back then too, of have, where do I integrate this straight air and everything like that. So, and, uh, and, and too, like there was, there was so many, uh, the, what's also changed too, is there was so many events back then. I mean, you could, you could had a whole contingency of riders that were doing the world cup series where they have eight world cups, half pipe contest you had a whole contingency of riders that were doing the opens and doing yep. you know the triple yep. crown the grand, and then you had other people doing the grand prix and you could kind of and you could really pick and choose back then like just based on um for me it was like a vibe thing like you know grand prix and world cups always felt more serious um triple crowns and the opens and stuff were always more money and so, and televised and things like that. And so there were so many different like levels to how you would qualify for stuff and everything. And now like everything is just, there's like five pipe contests a year. So that's another thing too, that I'm, I'm so, you know, grateful for that time because with, uh, you know, I think there was one year where I did something like 15 or 16 contest you know what i mean where i was like you know like i went to japan twice in one month for like once for a half pipe contest i came back i went to norway for the, the arctic challenge and i came back to J- japan for the toyota big air and you know contests like that you would just show up and and just for showing up they would give you cash 
just to come. They're like, okay, cool. Thanks for coming. Here's four grand. And then if you win or get top four, you get another 10 or 20 or something like that. So just to show up and like, you know, go participate in some of these events you were getting paid and stuff. And so you really did feel, um, it really was worth it. You know, you really did feel compensated for your time and stuff. And, um, I, I really did like the structure of snowboarding back then. Um, because I mean, I think that, uh, you know, I think what hasn't changed is that, you know, it is pretty hard on your body, man, you know, and it's hard on your mental, it's hard on your mental game. And, and, you know, I'm a big believer that, you know, you know, you have snowboarders from all different shapes and sizes. And I'm a big uh, proponent that snowboarding is like 75% mental, like 25% physical. I mean, I think, you know, in, a, in another sport like basketball or like whatever, if you took a guy like Abe Teeter and Louis Vito, you know, based on just size alone, Abe Teeter would probably always be that person that would, you know, granted Louis is, Louis is a hundred percent totally jacked and has like 0% body fat, but I'm just using it in terms of size comparison. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In snowboarding, it doesn't matter. You know, you could have a guy that's like Toby Miller size or Louis size up against somebody who like Orion Wackendorfer or, you know, some of these guys that are taller or whatever. And it really doesn't matter. It's, you know, it, at that point, I feel like it's like, who's got the mental game to ride under pressure and like deliver the goods, you know? So, um, but it does, it does break you down mentally, man, as well as physically for sure. I was with the, when you're traveling around the, I guess the resurgence of, cause after the, all the young bucks were in the mix, the friends crew started. Right. And I remember it was a very much in the, I mean, what were we in, what, oh, what, what year did Friends say? Was it 07? Yeah, it was like 07. 07? Yeah, it was around that time, like 07, 08. Yeah, the, um, I remember on, in the scene in New Zealand anyway, it was because the Burton crew would roll in heavy and essentially everyone was pretty much on Burton at the time, except for I think Scotty, maybe he, he wasn't, but if, if it was mm -hmm. just, you know, you, Kev, Luke, Jack, the, the whole sort of crew. At, its, um, at the start of it, how did it feel being part of something like that? Because, you know, you were with your friends traveling around the world and in, in your own little bubble, you were the crew in the party everywhere you went because you were sort of part of it. Those early days, what was it like being, being in, in the mix with friends? It was, it was, you know, it was awesome. I think that, um, you know, I just listened to uh, Danny Davis just did his podcast, a podcast with um, the bomb hole, which is like Chris Grenier and Eastone. Um, and he talked about it a little bit. I think that, uh, you know, in the beginning it, it was, you know, it was really meant to be this thing that was like just super exclusive and super tight. And, and, um, you know, I think like how it kind of ended up was being, uh, this thing where like, we kind of were like, you know, we had a lot more like homies that we wanted to like be a part of it, like Mickle and Greg Bretz and Eric Jackson and, you know, some of these other guys and stuff. And, and then, um, so, I mean, it definitely like evolved, but in the beginning it was cool. I mean, you know, I think that a lot of us really looked up to that like grenade crew, you know, Grenade, you know, that whole yeah. grenade thing. I mean, for me, that was like it for me. I mean, I moved to Mammoth when I was 14. So like I got oh, to they, like, they ran, I was like, ran I was, yeah. yeah, that was 2000. That was like, everyone was there. Like, you know, me and Dingo went to high school together. Like me and Danny were in the same school. Um, I was obviously younger than both of them, but like just seeing, you know, I'd go to a party and they'd 
I'll be there. And it was like, you know, I'm like, you know, a year before this, like in my room, like seeing the grenade guys in the magazine. Like, so it was like, I, I literally was like, holy shit, this is like so nuts. And, 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 uh, so to have something that was kind of, you know, not nearly as like iconic, you know, um, but, to, but to be able to, um, to be in, in a, to take the kind of the competition out of it, I guess, I think, you know, the, what we thrived off of what, which I feel like really worked for us as a crew is, you know, like if, if, um, if, if one person won or podiumed and the rest of us didn't, I mean, it was a win for us, you know, like if yeah. Danny won the contest or if I won the con or Kevin, you know, I mean, there is, I mean, the, the first time that Kevin beat Sean at, at, in Japan at, at uh, the Nippon open, I mean, it was like, it was such a big deal for Kevin, yeah. but it was a big deal for us because like it had been this whole thing of like, it was a really tough time to be a pro snowboarder because Sean was winning everything. I mean, he is arguably, arguably, over the last 20 years, the most dominant, you know, winning it, yeah. like, and that's a fact, you know, and, and we, we all, I mean, I can speak for most of the guys that, you know, we all have a lot of respect for Sean, but it was very difficult to be able to like kind of squeeze in there because it was just like, no one had really beat him. So it was like, you know, when someone would kind of beat him on a good day, it was like a win for all of us. So that's just, you know, an example of when, uh, you know, of how it worked, you know, because it was like, you know, or a handful of us or a couple of us would get into a final and it definitely alleviated some of that pressure up top, you know, when totally. we'd be in for a run, just kind of be able to shoot the shit and be like, Oh, well, you know, we're going to party tonight or, or whatever. And so, um, you know, where it, where it changed and where it kind of got not so, not so fun is when friends turned from just the friends crew and making funny videos for YouTube and the friends vision stuff into what became like a women's headphone brand, which was kind of, it was wild. It, it, was, it was kind of out of our hands and, and at that time. And, you know, I, I'm, myself, um, <laughs> cause I turned up to CES and, and I saw it and I'm like, this isn't the same shit. I was like, what? <laughs> What, like it was the w wildest thing because it's pretty yeah we'll, we'll, we'll go there how did it go from the boys crew everyone you know trying to someone take a shot at sean to women's headphones yeah it, it is it is funny and that that just like that's such a pair that's such a uh polar opposite of where we ended up um so i think initially with the headphones i mean i know initially i mean our market was action sports you know like it really was um, you know, skull candy was our only competition at the time. And this is just kind of my version of it. Um, I've heard Kier on a podcast, tell a different version of it because Kier was like the CEO guy and like the dude running a lot of the shit for me on my level, I was part of the crew and I was an investor in the company. So I was an owner and, um, you know, just being, just because you're an owner doesn't really mean you have much autonomy over what happens and what decisions are made. You know, that, that was a big lesson that I learned in business, business being a part of this business. Um, so, you know, I, I'm going to preface all this was just saying that, you know, I never went to business school and never went to college, you know, so to be a part of a business and a company that ended up in Apple and Best Buy and Target and Urban Outfitters and all these really big bought Nordstrom, all these big stores was, it, it was definitely like, holy shit, like, this is awesome. You know, we made it, you know, that's that at one point I was like, this is going to be the way that I get out of snowboarding and continue my monetary journey. But, um, I think that when, when we had initially zoomies and some of these, uh, more endemic, uh, retail spots, you know, um, snowboard shops and skate, you know, like the, my shop sponsor that was sponsoring me, Valsurf, they came in and we put a friend, they put a friend's display at the front of the store and took us in. I think initially we had a lot of issues with breakage. 
we were getting a lot of warranties and our, our product, like, I guess for lack of a better word, it sucked. Um, so there was that. And then you have, um, I think there, we had, uh, you know, orders that needed to be fulfilled and you need capital to fulfill those orders. And that always seemed to be a conversation of having capital to get the orders. And this at the time at, at me being, you know, 22, 21, 23 years old, I mean, I was just like, like that shit was over my head. I was like, capital schmapital, dude, like get the orders in and like, let's sell the shit. You know, like what's, what's so hard, you know, like, um, it's so funny how there's, there's so much more that goes on, um, doors and stuff, right. When it comes to business. And I think at the time I was so frustrated with like Kier and, and we had brought on, um, one of the guys that had started Gravis um ek and he kind of came on and you know and all of a sudden we had like people like working for friends that weren't really even like a part of the crew and we're like who who the fuck are these guys you know what i mean like we don't even like these dudes like why are they so then but that at that time like this this moving kind of far along and then i think we went to las vegas um for like a big uh meeting a big friends meeting which was um more or less like we did drugs all weekend <laughs> Um, but we for board meeting in Vegas. I don't think you're talking about your problems. Yeah, else. no, for sure. I mean, we did have we did like sit down for a day and talk about stuff. And Kier kind of, um, I think when you know bringing friends to to light, um, you know, doing the research and getting the idea that it was going to be headphones. Because at first we were just like, we want to make a product. You know, like we we feel like the friends crew itself has such a big following that we want to make something. Um, like, so we were like, oh, we could do shoes or we could do like, nothing really seemed right. Like we don't want to do snowboards because you know, Burton was supporting a lot of us and, um, you know, Scotty had like billabong and, you know, outside of, um, you know, our, our respective, you know, snowboard companies, we had other big sponsors, you know, shoe companies and all this kind of stuff, like you know, Nixon and all this stuff. So, um, no, we landed on headphones and then it, it took like two or three years to get all that first round of product to market. And by that time it had gone from like just skull candy to like beats by Dre, Bob Marley headphones, V Moda, like, you know, Sony's making really good shit. Like you got tons of company, you know, the market all of a sudden is like super saturated by the time we like actually came out with products at the, in the beginning, it really seemed like skull candy was the only, co like they were kind of like the company doing it. And we were like seeing what they were valued at and you know, their big company and they had everybody and we're like, well, we could be like the other player, like in action sports and get like the other people that skull candy doesn't have to buy our stuff. And I, and I think it, it made a lot of sense at the time, but um, I think the shift into, into the women's market was like, uh, just that there was like a gap there, you know, that there was like a niche that wasn't being like kind of fulfilled and why, why, and I don't know, like the whole like women's kind of fashion high end, like I didn't really get it, but like the stuff looked okay though. Like I was like, the headphones look kind of cool. So I was, I was kind of, and you know, at that time I, um, you know, I really believed in Kier. Uh, Kier was like one of my heroes growing up. I, I was so pumped to be a part of a company with him. Um, we did have, you know, a little bit of a, a falling out when, um, you know, friends kind of like, cr you know, crashed or whatever. But, you know, since then, you know, we've, you know, re, you know, rekindled our friendship and stuff. And I, I love him a lot. And, uh, you know, that's, I, I think my takeaways from, you know, friends as a, as an experience is, you know, I, I'm grateful that I'm, I'm still homies with all the guys. Um, you know, I talk to Kevin very often. I, I, you know, speak to Scotty. I saw him last year. I mean, we all stay on like a group chat. I mean, so it's cool to be able to have those memories and, and, um, 
those guys have, and, you know, to be able to have done all the traveling and just so many memories and experiences with those dudes. Um, you know, I think that, you know, my takeaway from the company is like, you know, I definitely <clears throat> like if I were ever to go into business again, you know, I'm not doing it with my 10 best friends and I'm not doing it with family. You know what I mean? I think that that's, that's a lesson that I had to learn the hard way. And it was being kind of advised against me by people that were managing my money, like my CPA and stuff like that to not do that. But, you know, I think that, you know, we have so much love for each other and so much faith that it was going to work out that we just did it, you know? And so I think that was something that um, none of us really expected. Um, I think that when you get money involved between people that you care about and stuff, man, it, it can get sketchy, you know, true color can come out, you know, you start throwing around numbers and percentages and what, who deserves this percentage and who deserves that. And uh, it can get kind of personal and kind of weird. But, um, you know, I think that, I think that, you know, all things considered, uh, I think that it was, there was some good takeaways from that. And, you know, unfortunately, I think what happened is Kier had to uh, somewhat like bankrupt the company and he sold it off to like a European distributor. It's still a company, I guess. Like, I mean, I, they, they were like still have an Instagram and they're posting stuff and <clears throat> they weren't posting for a while. And then like, I saw them posting stuff again. And I think it, it was like our distributor from the Netherlands or something like that. So I, I, yeah, zero involvement. I don't have anything to do with it anymore. Um, but you know, as far as the crew, man, it was, it was awesome. And, and I love those guys for sure. I remember I saw Kier at um, CS a couple of years ago and I was like, yo, what's up, man? He's like, oh, hey, bro. I was like, so how's it going? Uh, and he goes, not good. <laughs> not good. I was like, really? He was like, real bad. And then yeah. all the stuff, I think it then come out with um, uh, Scotty suing him for the 50K and all sorts of stuff. And you kind of then wonder, you know, this there's why these players and their owners and sometimes I guess when there's a lot of them in the mix, it kind of feels like the the intent was right, but right. it was potentially led led and you didn't have a tight enough circle commercially around you to actually do the business doing. And then the next thing you know, you've got, I guess, non business people doing a whole bunch of business shit that are probably exactly your point, just like whatever. And then um, you know, supply chains break down and how a business is actually run and that's the last thing you want to be thinking about when you're trying to yeah. go out there and shred right you, you focus on your back-to-back tens not worrying about flipping a shipping container and taxes that are due in at out in la to be able to get back to flipping australia to to supply some orders right right and i think i think that like too it's like you 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 know we were around people you know we were around a lot of like powerful people sometime you know i mean that had money that had like started companies and there you know when people start saying like oh this has the potential to be you know skull candy is worth 500 million friends has the potential to be worth 100 and something million and i'm thinking like if i have you know i started out with 10 percent of the company and i think i got diluted down to like three point something percent but even at that i'm like dude if we we're 100 million sold like that's three something million like you're, you know I'm, I'm running the numbers in my head this person's running the numbers in their head and, um, you know, so you really get kind of excited about the hypotheticals of, you know, what could be, you know, so I really like wait on that. And especially when like I stopped getting paid for my sponsors in 2013, I mean, this was still three years before friends had really like gone kind of down the drain. But, um, so I was like, Oh, I hope this works. I hope this works. And, you know, um, to speak on, you know, the Scotty situation real quick, um, you know, I, I, you know, Kier owes me still, you know, a, a lot of money. And, um, and, you know, I, but, and, you know, for me, 
you know, when I got sober, like I had to really reevaluate my life and look at, you know, my priorities. And, you know, I realized that I was carrying around such a big financial resentment against friends and against Kier for what happened and stuff. And you know what, like it was, um, it was my money. I made the decision. Um, I knew that there was risk involved. Um, you know, you, you like to think that people are going to hold up their end of the deal and, you know, unfortunately, that wasn't entirely the case. I got back some of the money, nowhere near close to what was owed to me. But you know what? Um, and I had contracts and all that thing. And, 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 and you know, apparently contracts got lost. And it just, you know, <laughs> it, it just got really, you know, and, and you know, it's tough because mm. these weren't decisions that I was making by myself. You know, I had my parents involved, all this stuff. So it would definitely like hurt, you know, but I had to really look at, you know, if, if I wasn't going to get the money back, was I at least willing to forgive Kier and move on from that and grow as a person? You know, that's like the, that's the adult conversation that I had to step into. You know, that was me having to like go from being little punk snowboarder Mason to like, I, I'm a man and I need to like, look at reevaluate the way that I kind of, you know, view this. And so getting, getting you know, on from that was, uh, it was a freeing feeling to be able to just like, be like, dude, it's, you know, it is what it is. And, and, uh, you know, I, I've grown from it and I've learned from it and, uh, there's no, there's, like I said, there's no bad blood or anything like that. Well, he kind of, I was going to say, you know, in the whole friends crew from those on the outside, it was basically all like the, all the young homies and then the older care. And then when they were looking at, when this came around, a lot of the, the talk was essentially, you know, oh, well, this is his transition out to go from, you know, part of this crew to then CEO of this business to then transition it out. And then so for him as well, it was kind of like a, a golden ticket layup to, to take, you know, the most talented, popular crew, commercialize that, take it out to the masses. And he's sort of sitting at the top. And then I guess the dangerous part is everyone that's beneath him is essentially looking up to him. So they're just trusting what he's saying. Yeah. So it's kind of this, this, this gap, right? Because then you, it's a difference between second guessing someone that you look up to as a hero or whatever to someone that actually knows how to run a, you know, a, a full business. So I think probably personally, there's probably a lot of, um, a lot of learnings to be had for that one as well, because the, all the makings of it were there. Um, right. Right. But the le it's, it's clear that probably just the leadership and the commercial side. And, and I'm sure even, I'm sure as Kurz probably talked about, it, it'd be really interesting to see from his side because um, this would have been his transition move as well. Right. This, Definitely. this was his play. Definitely. And I know that, you know, and, and, and to give Kier, you know, I don't want this to be a shit on Kier, uh, you know, topic, you know, by any means. And, 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 you know, with that, um, you know, I know that he worked his ass off, man, because, you know, like I lived, in, I lived in Carlsbad where Kier lived, you know, we live in the same town. I would go over to the office. I would see him, you know, doing it. We would talk and stuff. And I know as well, you know, as much as I, I was a financially invested, he was two, three, five times as financially invested into into friends and so i know that he made a huge commitment financially into friends it's not like he was taking everybody's money and then flying around with his dick in the wind you know what i mean like yeah, he totally. was definitely he was definitely invested and it wasn't just uh from a financial perspective it was from a time perspective i mean i know that he put everything into it and so you know i you know i i was we were all rooting for him you know we were all rooting for the company and i think that uh it, it was cool to see I think why I was so, um, I, I, I believe that he believed, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. so I was like, I was all into, you know, so if he needed 30 grand, I was like, you got it. You know what I mean? Like I wasn't thinking about first, the repercussions 
um, and whatnot. And, you know, I think for me, what was, what was tough to see is, uh, you know, I saw the shark tank episode. Um, he went on shark tank and he just, and, and I know, and, and I know I that they just showed some snippets on there. I think you could probably find it on YouTube, but, uh, Ashton Kutcher was like the guest shark on <laughs> shark tank. And, um, you know, he had just, they had just pretty much, um, once they got into the actual numbers of friends, I think that it started off kind of good. Once they got into the actual numbers, I mean, they just, I mean, they just got destroyed, you know, because they had said that they had, I, I don't quote me on this, but I think they had lost around $7 million in two years. And so I don't think that someone that's trying to, you know, and they're trying to get a million dollars for like 3% or something. I don't really know the numbers, yeah. but it just didn't, it didn't really seem like it matched up right. So I, I, I saw that and I, Part of me was like, uh, you know, part of me was like, yeah, that's what you get. You know what I mean? Because, like, that's my money, you know. But at the same time, like, I felt so bad, you know what I mean? And that takes a lot of guts to to go and, uh, you know, go to people and try to, you know, fundraise and something for a cause and a company that you believe in and put a lot of time into and stuff. And, um, you know, I think that I know for a fact that Kier has grown a lot from the experience, too. You know what I mean? And I think that um, – I think that, you know, some of the most successful people, I mean, you know, success just doesn't come like overnight, man. I mean, I, I'm sure that there's guys like Gary V and, you know, these influencer dudes on Instagram that, you know, are part of Snapchat and all these companies. I mean, I know that they didn't just kill it on the first try, you know what I mean? So for that being Kier's first company and my first company and stuff, like, I think that, you know, we made it, we, we made it pretty far, you know, I never made a check from it, but I mean, we, we got to see it. We got to see it come to fruition somewhat. You know, yeah. I, I was, I was walking in the Santa Monica promenade one day and I walked into urban outfitters and I saw friends headphones and I walked across the street to the Apple store and I saw friends headphones. And later that week I went to Best Buy to go get something. And I saw friends headphones. And then, you know, I saw some dude walking down the street with friends headphones and I, and I was, you know, and I just within that week, I was like, dude, I mean, that's, you know, that's every kid's dream that wants to start a clothing brand or, you know, wants to start a shoe company or whatever to see your shit actually in the store. I mean, that was cool. You know, like that was really cool. I definitely was starting to get Lamborghini dreams, you know, like from that week, like thinking like, well, everyone <laughs> sees the exit. They can, they can say like, Oh, if, if skull candy's this and we're cooler than that and sweet, but you know, yeah, a lot of good lessons. I think when you're in that mix, cause then you, that, that dice gets rolled. Um, and then you have the strategies wrong and it doesn't execute out commercially what you think. Right. And then you kind of sit there just like, Fah. and then, you know, it's similar to a lot of, you know, artists that have all these big hits, but that, you know, they're still broke from it. They don't see, see any of the stuff. It's like, how'd this happen? It's like, well, yeah. you know, bad deals, bad back end. The empty gonna, effect. Yeah. yeah uh, with the, um, the whole Sean White thing, it was very clear that it was, everyone was on the crew except him. How was it being this teammate of, sean's been on burden but he's he's part of this but not part of that because every time in, in new zealand and everywhere else obviously we've been in similar sort of circles it's the sean show with the entourage and the the, the whatever and then everyone else like I've seen yeah. time and time again like i mean and i've never it, it, it always quite um we talk about camaraderie and 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 friends and and, and all the rest of it and you know you go as far as you want with it but i always wondered what that dynamic must be like we are on the same team of burden and, and and snowboard world whatever but we are totally not on the same team because it's my homies versus you you know how how was that tension navigated over a decade uh it's interesting i don't think that it really 
I think pre friends, like it, it, um, pre friends, like pre like the crew or whatever, it was kind of starting. I, I don't really know. I mean, it, it seemed like, uh, we were all like really close. Like, um, Sean had just, but this is kind of how I remember it. This is kind of the short, yeah. kind of how it all started with, and so if you want to call it beef and whatever, um, is that we went to, we were staying at different Sean's lines. house. You were on different lanes. And it was very yeah, clear. Lines. I, mean, you, I mean, you're exactly right. You have, you have Sean yeah. who, you know, and even today, I mean, Sean is the most successful snowboarder. He's a pro skateboarder, musician. I mean, he's all these things and he's, you know, millions and millions of dollars, you know, whatever houses, all this stuff. You know, I've seen a lot of this stuff with my own eyes. So, I mean, I know it's true, you know, and it's just, it's really cool for me to see that like someone who rode a snowboard did that. And that is, you know, the side, you know, dude selling freaking bed sheets and targets, you know what I mean? And like, whatever, <laughs> like that's, you know, you made it. Um, but we went to, uh, we went on that trip to Japan that I was talking about Kevin won, you know, we were all celebrating. I, I don't think, you know, I got, Kevin won, Sean got second. I got third. It's a slope style contest. You know, we were just like, couldn't believe it that it was like, you know, it was that close. And, and, you know, Sean rode that good and Kevin beat him. I mean, it was definitely like a turning point. And, and the way that I remember it, it being, you know, however many years now, 13 years ago, um, Sean got completely not drunk after the contest, like before the award ceremony, but after the contest, um, I got back to my hotel room and the whole hotel room was completely fire extinguished. I mean, yeah, completely whatever, all this stuff, everything's, everything's, you know, my computer, snowboard stuff, all this stuff. And so, um, for me and my angle from it, I was like, I went up to him, was like, dude, did you do that? He's like, no, I swear I didn't blah, blah. I found out like it was him. So that kind of made me upset and all this stuff. And then, um, we basically been like staying at Sean's house in San Diego before this trip. And Kevin had just come back from a trip from Japan before that, where he had won Toyota big air and won like 50 grand in yen. So he had like cash at Sean's house at this new mansion that he just bought. And we had plans to go back to um, the States for like two days. And then we were flying to Norway for the Arctic challenge. And so Sean, before the contest ended, like a couple days before Sean was like, you guys can stay at my house it's all good. Like I'm not coming back. Cause Sean was like either staying in Japan or he was going somewhere else. But he said that we could stay at his house in San Diego. Cause at this time, none of us were living in San Diego yet. So, um, we went back, uh, we had, you know, the thing had the altercation happened. And then in Tokyo, we had another thing that happened where, where it came and Kevin got into some kind of shit talking thing. Yeah. And like, and like, uh, someone's shoes got thrown off a balcony into the street in Tokyo. Like it was kind of yep. blurry and, you know, we're all drunk and stuff like that. And we got back, we flew home back to San Diego and we got back and we got to Sean's house and all of Kevin's stuff from his guest room was like packed up on the front step and all of the yen, like all of the cash was on the front step of his house. Like in, if you walk in the inside foyer, like his stair set there wasn't outside, but it was right at the bottom of the stairs. Like it pretty much was like a get out of my house like that, you know? Yeah. And, um, so we get back and we're like, we're like, so what happened? We, we think we, we don't know the full story cause we don't know what the, what the dialogue was, but we're assuming that Sean called someone to say, you know, get their get stuff out. out of here, blah, blah, blah. And so we kind of took that as like, man, that's, that's dirty, you know? So we had to go and uh, stay at Danny's agent's house, like five of us. Like go stay at her small ass house in San Diego, like on the floor where, you know, 
on the couch, on the floor, one arm hanging off, you know, on the kitchen Two island, I feel, you know, just had to call an audible real quick. And so that was kind of like, you know, we felt kind of dissed um, about that. And it's also like, you know, we were like, why couldn't Sean just be happy for Kevin and this kind of playing this poor sportsmanship kind of thing. Like, man, he just was like for the kid that wins literally everything, you know what I mean? Um, and this is funny because Sean called me about this whole story last um not this, not October of 2019, but October of 2018. Like I just started barber school. There's my Instagram comments blew up and I didn't, Sean didn't even follow me on Instagram or nothing. And my comments blew up about um, something about Kevin. Like, why don't you just so whatever to Kevin, like you did with his, <clears throat> you know, like <clears throat> something about like you could kick Kevin out of your house or something back yeah. in the, cause it was from, uh, we told some of this story in his Kevin's documentary, the crash reel. And so, uh, Sean basically calls me out on the, on Instagram and calls me a liar and tells me that I lied about it. And you know, the, the story, the story that I told you, it's, it's very complex. There's a lot of, there's a lot of detail. Uh, yeah, yeah. It's like, <clears throat> I would have to go through a whole, you know, a whole, a whole script to try to make this up. Right. And so he, uh, in 07 is when I switched to, to burden and obviously friends with a bunch of the crew and I was started hearing all these random stuff from popping up around the J japan thing that the money at the house thing all these other things i'm like what right is, this is like it was a thing and yeah. obviously you know it's i guess it's almost pre-social media but then you're like how is the beef so young with so much and then you know you're young you're competitive and elitely driven and you know ego and money gets in the way and competition drive and these things escalate but it's 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 funny hearing it that that's actually exactly the same way that i, I got told you it's nuts. yeah i mean it's i guess it's that like fight or flight response you know and so so sean called me um well he, he first he kind of called me a liar on uh instagram and said you know you need to clear up these lies and all this stuff and i said like dude there's that's not you can call me if you want there's no lies about it um you know i i was like i have no beef with you man it's been <laughs> it's been 12 years um and literally two minutes later my phone rings and it's a it's a los angeles phone number and i'm like hello and he's like hey it's sean white and i was like Hey, what's up, man? You know, he's like, man, so I just need to, you know, like what's going on and what? And so, so really what, what it was is Sean didn't remember like how the story went down. He didn't remember like what happened and he's stuff. Like that. Yeah. He's probably shit faced. You know what I mean? And you know, there's no harm, no foul, man. We've all done it plenty of times. You know, I, I've, I've been a poor sport before, you know, the first two years that I was on tour, man, I, I wouldn't make a final or I wouldn't land a run. And, I, you know, I'd huff and puff and make a scene and throw my helmet and I'd do all this stuff. And, like, eventually, like, dude, my dad had to pull me aside. And he's like, dude, if you keep doing that, like, I'm not going to let you come to pro contest anymore. Like, you're not going to act like a little shit, you know, like it's not happening, you know. And so I changed my attitude, you know, and I got I got a little bit more adult and a little bit more um, supportive of my fellow competitors, man. And, like, got a little bit more, like, on the team of, like, you know. That like snowboarding is fun, you know, and so um, but but I am not void of uh, being a poor sport at times. I definitely have been that, and uh, I have not only been that in snowboarding. I've been a poor sport in life sometimes. <laughs> I mean, it's not. I think when you're competitive not, and you know what you can get, you get frustrated if you're not to that that level. And you know, instinctively, it's not that you're mad at others. It's you, you're pissed with yourself because you know you're better. It's, it's, oh, absolutely, it's a competition. You know, a hundred percent. Um, so, so we cleared up the, we, I cleared up the story with Sean and, you know, and then, and I was like, dude, like, um, you know, that I, that I, 
you're like in, you're like a celebrity man you know what i mean like don't aren't you used to people you know dropping in your comments and saying shit like i, I wish i had some haters on instagram you know what i mean i wish i had some people you know what i mean hating on me and shit you know like i wouldn't i wouldn't mind it you know um so i mean obviously as someone that's a celebrity i think that that they would know that they're going to have that. Um, we, we actually, the rest of our conversation went pretty good and, you know, it was nice to catch up with him and stuff. And I, and I was like, dude, I respect you. You know what I mean? Like I always have, I think you're the shit, you know, like uh, coming off the Pyeongchang gold medal, you know what I mean? Like after the crash and Cardrona and all the, the, you know, the ups and downs of his whole lot year. And I hadn't spoken to him in a couple of years and I was just like, man, I just have to acknowledge you and let you know, like that was so freaking cool for me to see you come back and ride like that dude you know and, and that's and that's uh you know and, and that's my way of 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 just showing respect and and you know putting it out there that you know what there is no beef you know there is no beef with sean um i guess i guess it started out kind of like playfully and stuff but i think that you know i think that there wasn't you know someone out there whether you're a slope star rider or a pipe rider who didn't want to beat the kid you know <laughs> yeah. there's was, there was a difference between um i think it was in his head it was you know like self-isolated against everyone against himself because he what like it was his drive felt so intense to himself but also to others like it was quite it wasn't out of not out of spite but um i think it, it, he almost like made himself even more of a lone wolf and you kind of got to wonder that sometimes i was actually watching the um the, the last dance with michael jordan and stuff and just thinking mm -hmm. of how how his headspace was and, and the difference was he had pippin and he had teammates but that same mindset is basically shown to a to a t and then so you wonder when the glory days are done the boots are hung up he's not doing back-to-back -back triples or whatever the shit is yeah and, you th and the, the the fear that you potentially have for someone like that is you know will he re when he you know wakes up potentially feeling lonely it's like all those friendships of missed opportunity that were actually there with olive branches, all those great opportunities of, of, of relationships all around the place, which could have been genuine. You know, you wonder at the cost of that greatness, have you, has, you know, do you potentially lose a little bit more in terms of relationships and others? And I, I think in time, it'll be really interesting to talk to Sean in 10 years after he's hung up the boots, um, you know, really just to see where his head actually was. It's similar to, you know, the Tyson thing. You When he describes his headspace of that time later, yeah. it's really interesting. I, I think Sean might have one of those, especially around action sports, because there's a lot of people who feel a certain way about it, you know? Yeah, for sure. And I think that, uh, I think that, you know, Sean's not, I think that maybe, you know, someone of Sean's caliber, you know, their circles definitely tend to be a little smaller, you know? Um, Sean's not the only uh, celebrity that I've known who I've, you know, hung out with and stuff and seeing that like you know their circles and their their trust levels and stuff with how they like surround themselves with people is tends to be a little smaller a little more cautious you know what i mean um i i've saw you know i would i would sometimes see sean out and you know we both lived in la for together at the same time and you know that was i felt like that was <clears throat> another thing too is like you know i would see sean out at you know a bar or a club or something like that you know being like one of the only other snowboarders like in his industry that lived in that city feeling like you'd be like dude like let's hang you know and you know he would he would invite me to this and that or whatever but like I'm, like none of my friends could ever come you know if i was with a girl she couldn't come like it was always like just and i'm like dude i'm not gonna like ditch my friends that actually you know what i mean like to go yeah, yeah. 
I always thought that was, I was always like a little off put by that, but I also was just a little bit like, okay, that's just maybe, he, you know, maybe he doesn't going to get a photo taken or someone's going to try to whatever. So, uh, but you know, I'd also been, um, you know, I've been competing against Sean White since I was nine years old, man. You know, like the first time that me and Sean competed against each other was, you know, amateur nationals in Big Bear, California in 1997. And, you know, and that's when we were in the same age group and, you know, so I've been, you know, uh, you know, there was obviously a gap there where Sean turned pro like 12, you know, like, and then was doing that game. <laughs> but um, as I am coming up, I mean, he was there at every nationals, uh, you know, in a, in a 10 and 11 age group, you know, all the kids are kind of, you know, being kids with each other and we're all kind of lighthearted and stuff. And I remember like, you know, a K2 was like my first sponsor and they had a couple other groms on their team, like Sammy Lubke and uh, Carson Schubert and, and this kid Skylar Thornton and stuff. And we were all kind of like hanging together and whatnot. And like, even back then, like Sean was kind of like on his own doing his own thing. So I don't think that it was ever the celebrity or if it was ever, drive the, the, you know, I think that it was just, that was always his MO and, and granted, like he was always winning. So maybe there's something to do with it there, you know? Um, Kevin was a big part of um, Friends and also, you know, the first to probably to beat um, beat Sean. How, you know, you talk about before, you know, when the phone stops ringing, after his injury, how much, what percentage of his world stayed back in touch with him? Well, with Kevin? Yeah. I think quite a bit. Um this is since we're since we're kind of uh you know moving laterally from the sean topic this was something really trippy that happened um that that i didn't talk about in the documentary um so i was with kevin the day before the accident um i was i was dating a girl in la uh, it was kind of it was kind of a new thing and and red bull was doing the thing in long beach where pastrano was like jumping his rally car over the long beach pier and i had like a yeah. bunch of homies that worked at red bull i didn't ride for red bull but i had a ton of friends that worked there and i was i was gonna go back to la and go to this red bull thing with this girl so like i was like no i don't want to go to park city and train for the olympics like i'm gonna go party it's you know it's new year's eve like everyone just needs to relax like you know because at this point my, my mo is still like I'd already been in the Olympics once. I wasn't trying to take it super serious. If I was going to make the team, I was going to make the team. If not, like it is what it is, but I wasn't going to rack my brain over it. Like I did, you know, the years before and I was just a little more lax about it. And so I, I, I flew back and I was at, I was at breakfast with this girl and um, I got and Louis Vito called me. He's, he's the most scared I've ever heard him, you know? And, oh my God, Kevin, dude, it's, it's bad. It's bad. Like just not making any sense, you know, about Kevin's fall telling me about it. You know, I'm trying to make sense of how serious it really is. He just, I, I don't really you know. At that time we really had like no information. Like Kevin had gotten airlifted. This is all I really knew. Um, as we're hanging up with the phone, I'm at this, you know, random restaurant in LA, Sean White walks into the restaurant, like new year's Eve, you know, that morning at that time, as Louis calling me about Kevin. And so like, I go over to Sean's table and I was like, yo dude, he's oh man, what's up? And um, I was like, dude, Kevin just got in a really bad accident. Like, I don't really know the details of it. Like, it's really bad. It's weird that you just like walked in and like just got off the phone. And I think me and him, like Sean, like didn't really know the severity of it. So I'm like, you know, we went, like I still went to the thing that night and everything like that. And um, Kevin's kind of mental coach guy that he was working with, his name was Todd he was traveling with Kevin to all these events and stuff, um, but wasn't going with him to as many training 
things uh, was there. And he's, and Todd seemed like really shook up about it. Like it was really bad. So um, I remember I was, uh, I was feeling, I was starting to feel kind of bad at that point. And then, uh, and then just kind of a funny side note on that night is that, uh, you know, this, this girl went, uh, she went like to the tanning booth like that day. She wanted to look tan for new year's. And she was like, yeah, have you ever tanned? And I was like, no, I've never tanned. She's like, why don't she's like, you do, you'd look good with the tan. Like you could tan. I was like, all right. So, uh, so I get in the tanning booth. You know what I mean? I'm like, you know, I'm going to look tan for new year's. Like, I kind of like this. Like, this is like maybe like a new me, you know, like I'm going to be tan. I'm in LA. Like this, I'm starting to hang out in LA more going tanning and dude, I burned the shit out of my balls tanning in the tanning booth and so i would and it's just i don't know if you ever had a, a been in a tanning booth before or bet yeah. you know and i wouldn't genetically tan. You know, but like you know when you get a bad sunburn and it's like it's almost like you, know, you get sun poisoned you know and it's like your your insides is burning so i just felt like so i i have a couple of photos from that night and I'm, I'm so red and i was wearing a black shirt so like the black shirt on the red face i'm just i just look cooked you know, because, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, my dad's Mexican. I'm, I'm half, you know, I'm half Mexican. So I, you know, I tan pretty good. And I'm like, he was like, yeah, put him in there for six minutes. And I was just like, I was like, well, how long are you going in for? She's like eight. And I was like, nah, do me eight minutes. Do me, let me get the tan for eight minutes. Let me get the full experience. <laughs> so I'm like reeling in this whole Kevin situation. I got this sunburn from the tanning booth. You know what I mean? I'm, I'm trying to talk to this Todd guy. I'm sweaty. Like it was just a really like off new year's. And then, um, yeah, I think I think uh, to get back on the subject, the real subject. Um, I think that Kevin, you know, had so much support through that time, and um, you know, it seemed like, um, you know, at that time, I mean, it, it was it was really only just close family, you know, that was allowed to see Kevin. You know, I was I was roommates with Kevin at the time. I was living with him. Um, I actually got hurt like eight days after Kevin. I, you know. Hence my, my lax approach to the Olympic qualifiers. I, I blew my shoulder out and um, had a had a tear in my labrum, and so I was I was on the um, I was on the injured reserve for the rest of that contest season, which really put a you know really put a hindrance on on my ML with going through that and with Kevin's thing. Like I was just like it was really you know what they say when it rains it pours. I mean it was definitely yeah. it was definitely raining and pouring. I was I was so bummed out um, when Kevin's brother Adam hit me up and said that I needed to look for my own place that's when I knew that it was serious because this was about two weeks after the accident. I'm back in San Diego hurt. I'm chilling at the house. I'm kind of looking for updates via the family, like what's going on with the house. Because at the time it was me, Kevin and Jack that were living at Kevin's house. And, um, and Adam was like, you need to move. Like we're putting the house up for rent. So that's when I was like, okay. So at that point, you know, Kevin was at the beginning of a long stay in Denver at the hospital doing rehab, you know, obviously looking at the documentary, the crash reel and seeing where Kevin actually was, you know, a week, two weeks, a month after the crash, it was way worse than I had thought, you know, because he, he just, I unrecognizable, you know, with the, the photos and just everything, you know, he had this like look in his eyes, like of having to like relearn how to just, uh, process information and just, it, it's scary, man. Like thinking of like your best friend who, you know, so much about and spend so much time with, um, having to relearn how to walk, talk, uh, eat, uh, communicate. I mean, everything. So, um, it was definitely, um, really cool to see not only like the whole snowboard community come in for that, like, you know, uh, that ride for Kevin stuff was really cool. And, um, just to see everyone kind of come together, man. And as, as a crew and, and just Kevin's family, I mean, he comes from such a good family. 
um, they're just like amazing people. And, um, you know, it was a really tragic thing. And obviously for Kevin, where he was at in his career, I mean, it's, it was just, it was absolutely devastating, you know? Um, he was, it was lining up all the chat was, I think Kev's got him. I think Kev's got him. Yeah. You know, like, and this was probably months in the making. Um, and cause I, they'd come down to, you'd all come down to New Zealand. People would literally talk me like, yep. He's, I think he's got him. I yeah, think he's got him. I think this is it. And then that that happens. It's um, I remember the the, the the night shoot that him and Sean did. I think it was on the one of the Mac Dogs movies. It was, yeah, it was all just like nighttime stuff. The, it was such a a cool coming together piece of just shred, but genuine. It looked like sort of genuine fun for a moment together. It was pretty special. Yeah. No, that did. That that was cool. And um, and it's funny because I think we touched on it earlier, like that that summer, like in New Zealand, when people were like starting to do doubles, all that stuff. That was the same, like that same summer. Um, Kevin had like gotten Mountain Dew to like Bill and Burton to like build a half pipe and mammoth, and like Kevin broke his ankle trying to cab double. He, like hit the deck and then like you know it's kind of like long, springboarded into the flat bottom, broke his ankle, came back from that injury, obviously and then was back kind of trying to get those tricks back for that, you know, upcoming season and then had the accident. So, I mean, you know, he was always, he's always been someone that's persevered and, you know, he was, he was just on a totally different level than me. I mean, in terms of the daily life, the around, um, how we lived, you know, I, I smoked weed all day and hung out and went to the beach and whatever. And Kevin Got was, eating, Kevin was eating flat. Yeah. I, I go to the tanning booth. Uh, Kevin was eating flax seeds and, and on his bike and, you know what I mean? Marathon type, you know, fitness. And I think that that's, you know, that was just the level that he was at, you know? And I think that part of that, I think for me, part of good, you know, taking it that serious and going to that level, it kind of, you know, in hindsight, now that I'm, I'm like so far removed from that, I think looking back, like, I think it scared me to go in like Kevin was going in to commit like that, because if I didn't make the team, I was going to be devastated. You know what I mean? And I think that I knew that I think in my mind, like I knew at that time that summer, like Sean and Kevin and Louis Vito, especially like those three dudes and Danny Davis, they had like all kind of pushed past me. And then my last contest that year of the 2009 season, I won due to her and beat Sean and beat Steve Fisher and beat some, they were kind of still the top guys. And so like I, I beat everybody. I won due to her. And, um, and then from there, like, it was like everybody kind of passed me up. And so I think that I was like, Oh, I, I'm, you know, I need to just like take it easy. Like I won a few contests last year. I'll just like go into the Olympics kind of casual and stuff, but to see like where Kevin's headspace was at, to see how hard he was like pushing it was like, you know, everywhere we'd go, he'd take his, and this is like pre Peloton era. You know what I mean? Kevin would bring his stationary bike with him. Like, you know, if we went somewhere for two days, you know, he'd bring his this hundred pound, like bike with him, you know, I'm just like, dude, like you got the bike and the flaxseed and the whole rig, dude. Like that's gnarly, like killing it, you know, have the mental code. Some bongs over here. Yeah. <laughs> but it was, it, it was interesting. Cause with the, the friends crew, you had the whole, whole crew was in the mix, you know, Danny was off doing his thing. Kier was kind of the, the older, older guy. And then Kevin was kind of the straight guy, but was hanging with all the loose dudes, right? Like it was, he was straight edge a bit more like still part of it, but you could tell he, he was, you know, um, he would work hard and, and then play hard, but he was yeah. his, his headspace probably mentally was 
pretty focused on some some bigger goals of, of what he yeah. was trying to go after as well right i mean kevin loved to party you know what i mean but yeah. but uh but he definitely had a better like discernment or, or like he had a, i don't know if that's the right word he had a better off switch you know to like be able to like channel in that that mode and, and it's i think it's <clears throat> you know i think it was after those first few conscious that he's won when he really started I mean, if you look at that montage in the documentary, I mean, it shows like all these contests that he started. Aaron's, I mean, he won. I mean, granted, his career was cut short, and that's a tragic thing, but he won all the biggest con. I mean, aside of the X Games, you know, aside of the X Games and the and the U.S. Open, I mean, he did win the U.S. Open quarter pipe, but like he won every the Arctic Challenge. I mean, European Open. I mean, these are all contests that are really freaking high level. Like you know that, you know, like you know the Aaron style like some of these events were like all literally like arguably the best people are at these contests and kevin won so i mean yeah. although his career was cut short i mean he did win the biggest contest that you could win and you know i think that's so much to be uh, accomplished for and you know not a lot of people do and you know i think that uh you know he's he out of the friends crew man he's he's one of the ones that keeps in touch with me the most you know and so uh you know it's it, it, space now i remember i saw him at x games I would have been years ago now after his accident, he was back and it, it just, it, he moved different. Like his eyes, his, his energy was not off, but you could tell it was, it drastically sort of changed him. How's he doing now? Cause obviously brain injuries ain't no joke. How's, how's his headspace now? It seems like it's pretty good. I mean, I think that, you know, for someone that has a TBI, from what I understand, there's a very few percentage that recover like Kevin mm. had. You know, um, I think Kevin is very lucky. And I think that also, I mean, I, I don't know if this is a fact or not, but I would say in my opinion, like the shape that he was in before he got hurt, man, has to do, has to have to do something with the way that he recovered because he was just in rock solid, good shape, good mental, you know, like his whole, he, he was trying to take care of all those different aspects of mm. the athlete mind, you know? and the athlete body, like, which was, I think kind of ahead of its time, because now it's like, you do see more snowboarders that are taking that approach where they're a little more of like an athlete and there's a little bit less like slack going on and stuff. But, um, I think, you know, it's take, it's been almost 2009. It's been almost 11, 10, 11 years now that the accidents happen and stuff. And, um, I think for someone that's never met Kevin, like you would have no idea that he ever had a TBI. You know, I mean, I think that that's like amazing um, for someone like me that's known Kevin for 20 years, over 20 years. Um, you know, he's, uh, you know, I will say that one of the good things that came out of Kevin's TBI is that, um, you know, with his um, intensity before the accident, you know, um, I kind of joke with him like he wasn't that fun you know to be around like i'm like, like come on dude you're not that fun. like this isn't like uh, you know the, you bring um, your 100 pound bike over here eating yeah like i shit. was like man just lighten up a little bit you know um but i get it like i think i was just being i think i was just kind of making fun of him a little bit but but uh you know but but yeah so he you know coming out of it and stuff he has this like really funny sense of humor nowadays you know and it's, it's a really sarcastic and that's kind of like the way that i am you know so i feel like almost me and him are like although we don't I, I don't see him as much and we don't speak as much like i feel closer to him like i feel like we almost have like more in common because he's you know hit, hit me up the other day probably about a month ago and um he uh he just bought a tesla 
So I'm like, you can't be doing that bad if you just if homie just bought a pet. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Uh, and he's showing me his house in Vermont. He's got a beautiful house, and his you know he's he's about to have a baby. And, yeah. So you know, he's got all this stuff going on, which is like awesome. I mean, he's been able to after this thing. And, you know, I mean, I, I, I guess I can relate. Like, you know, once once I let go of my identity as a snowboarder of that. So, I mean, obviously, I'll always be a snowboarder. But, you know, I think you get so far deep in the in the career of it that it's like really just that's like how you identify. Like, this is who I am. And and I think, you know, it was for Kevin to kind of just be Kevin and um live his life you know he's been you know had so many gifts that have come after the tbi you know mm. um i you know i i don't know i can't speak for him but i'm sure that uh, i don't think that he would change it you know i don't think that he would change you know how things happen because he had so much other things he i mean he, he has a, a really awesome wife and you know family is you know obviously always been such a big part of kevin's life and um you know i think there's been, you know, he's got to take brain awareness and put it on this platform with love your brain and his nonprofit with Adam and go and do lots of keynote speaking and a lot of stuff, which, you know, I, I wish I could do more of, you know, like, so this is really cool for me to be able to do like interview with you or do podcasts and stuff like that. But Kevin really has a tangible thing to, and a platform with his story and, and it impacts so many people. And it's also so inspiring, you know, what he's gone through. And it's funny because uh, more often than not, I mean, even in Charleston, like we're at the beach here in the Southeast of the United States, there's no, I mean, the, there is a ski resort that I go snowboarding at about four and a half hours away. It's very small, but um, I was working at a, at Whole Foods market when I first moved here. That wasn't, that's, you know, I went, you know, snowboarder to cashier, you know, I know that's quite the, you know, but, uh, at Whole Foods, I, I would get recognized by people from Kevin's documentary, which was the most random thing, like in, in Charleston, South Carolina. And so it was really cool for me to see like how, you know, how much his, you know, the crash reel and his story had reached people even outside of snowboarding, outside of action sports. Um, people are like, are you, in, are you in that Kevin Pierce documentary? I'd be like, yeah. Like, oh man, we just love that. I thought I recognized you. What, what are you doing working here? Like, just being like, <laughs> you know, like, yeah, it's a long story. Uh, yeah. Um, so that Coke was, will do that. Coke benches will do that to you. <laughs> oh man. You're telling me they will. I got you three years sober now, right? I think was it? Yeah, man. I'm about three and three and a half years sober, three and a half Damn. years almost, which is like, that's huge, man. Time flies, man. Congrats, bro. Yeah, man. I, I'm grateful. You know, it's it's a uh, sobriety has been really cool. It's it's been really difficult. I mean, it's been it's been great, but it's also been difficult at times, man. I, I'm definitely not one of these people that talks about sobriety like it's all sunshine and rainbows all the time because it, it because regardless of the fact of whether or not I'm sober or not, you know, sober or not, life still happens. You know, life still comes at you. Um, you know, I, I got I got consequences from my past. I'm still dealing with mostly financial. Uh, I got, um, you know, obviously we're living an interesting time right now. Pandemic and all this stuff going on. Um, that that's you know, but but I will say that when all this stuff happened, work shut down, everything like that. Uh, man, I was so grateful to have a foundation of sobriety and of recovery, and and really like what it what it's done for me is just a total perspective shift on how I see myself, uh, you know, how I treat others, how I talk about others, um, you know, and, and it's just, and I know that the proof is there, man, because it's like I I I, I probably I wouldn't have re I'm sure I wouldn't have reconnected with you 
um, had I been still out running and gunning and doing what I was doing before. So, I mean, I have, I have people that have come into my life, people that have come back into my life. I mean, relationships that were completely decimated, man, when I was on, yeah. when I was on a bad one that have totally been restored with family and with friends. And, and, you know, I've had to go and I've had to go and, and, and apologize to some people, man, you know, and I've had to go and, and write some wrongs. And that is a huge, uh, you know, that ego deflation that takes place when you go and tell somebody, look, I was wrong, you know, mm. and uh, I made a mistake and, uh, you know, I don't want to hurt you again. And, uh, and, and did I, is there anything that you want to share with me that I did to you that I could do better next time or in the future? And it's, it's, it's humbling, dude. I mean, the whole process of recovery and making amends to people and all this stuff that comes with it is, it, it was, uh, definitely more than i thought i was taking on when i got sober like there's more to it <laughs> but because well, um, you're transitioning out of out of a world which would basically wake up shred party repeat definitely for years for years, years. And especially um especially when and it's in that environment too because I, you know i would just try to describe it to people i said well imagine when you you know 20 years old, you've got a black credit card. You can go anywhere in the world. Girls want to jump you. Everyone wants to be you. You're shredding it. You're dominating. You're going to the bar. You're the flipping man, blah, blah, blah. Escalate that for years and years and years. And then think of the the headspace when you try to transition out of that, you know, and to do to do the way you probably have as well. It's it's tough because, you know, as your skill set change, it puts you in trickier spots trying to figure out, you know, who are you? What have you become? It, it, it probably makes for some uncomfortable conversations with yourself right because you wake up and you don't want to identify as the snowboard guy as your identity but it's been such a huge big part of you um with also obviously the drugs and the party and the bullshit and the booze you know it's it's not easy to 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 be sustainable in that in that lifestyle when it's so accessible and it's so cool and accepted right yeah like that it's it's like a it's almost rigged for those that mentally don't have that fortitude to, to battle against it. Right. It's almost unfair on so many. And I've seen a bunch go down other paths, you know? Yeah, man. I mean, you know, I mean, I will start by saying, you know, alcoholism and uh, drug addiction is, is deeply um, ingrained in my, in my family. You know what I mean? Um, my mom is, my mom has been sober 32 years. My, my stepdad's sober. My dad is sober. I mean, uh, you know, and I got a lot of active alcoholics and stuff in my family on the extended side too. And, um, you know, so there's that, what I call the genetic bullet. That's, that's always been there that I never really, uh, I never really knew about, you know, and I grew up, you know, I got, you know, and I had all the opportunities afforded to me, man. I grew up in a sober household. I never seen my mom take a drink. Um, I grew up around my mom, uh, you know, and stepdad being active in recovery, not just sober, but active in recovery, helping other alcoholics. I mean, I saw this stuff from a kid, you know, I never, um, but you know, being that I turned pro at a young age, I mean, I think my first trip I went on outside of the country was to Switzerland to locks for a world cup. Oh. <laughs> yeah, the contest ended up getting canceled. So I was basically um, twelve. Yeah, went over there. I remember we rode like in Davos one day. We rode locks one day up on the glacier. Kind of got to ride pipe practice. Um, I, I'd been drunk like a couple times, like once or twice. And um, there's no drinking age in Switzerland, dude. So I like felt like you know I could go to the bar and like be a man, you know, whatever. And then um, that year, like I went to my first super park and. Uh, and Chad Otterstrom owned a bar and like me and Scotty Lego and Eric Jackson, like all got into the bar and we were all 15. 
and like we're getting shots from snowboarder magazine all this stuff so like i you know turning 21 was like not you know and that's the drinking age over here as you know but um turning 21 was like not a big deal because i'd already been going into bars for five years i had multiple mm -hmm. fake ids like I, I had a i had a buddy that uh was a hacker who like hacked the california dmv system got me a real california id with my <laughs> picture on it like it scanned it blacklit it had like my address and it's the only thing that was different on my id was my birth my birth year like it was still mason nagiri like it, it matched up with all my freaking uh credit cards like sometimes i'd show that idea at the airport like just forgetting that it was the fake one um so yeah i think there is a kind of like a you know and i think it, it, you do with it as you as you may when it comes to having that autonomy as an athlete like you got money got you know nice stuff you can go wherever and like once i started like doing stuff like gambling and like going to vegas and like hanging out in la and like i moved to san diego and like became friends with like you know people that dj'd and people like out like maybe still in action sports but outside of snowboarding that's when like i really saw like opportunities you know like when i moved to la and i started meeting people that like did more drugs and stuff like that i was always like i was always like a, a pothead and a and a you know a drinker and stuff like that from a casual place and you know, I think I had a couple, a couple of contests where I maybe tied one on a little too hard. And I was like, you know, riding the next day, like, fuck, I, I shouldn't have gotten that waste. And then, and then like, I'd make the final and I'd like placed, you know, I'd get like on the podium and be like, oh, I'm unstoppable. Um, but like, the thing is, though, was like, after those contracts ended that I talked about earlier when we were yeah. first talking, I, I just like, I didn't know it, it honestly, like, it, it sounds kind of like extreme, but like, dude, like it felt like a death, you know, like it felt like my life was over and it felt like, you know, I, the, the thing that I tried to ignore for so long or tried to avoid was that I was just a snowboarder and that's how I identified because I was always tell people in interviews or I talk to people or I'd see these like kids that were like totally obsessed with like only snowboarding. And I'm just like, Oh, you're a nerd. You know what I mean? Like I, I had other interests. I like, I like getting tattooed and I like music and I liked, you know, I like, you know, whatever partying and I liked art and all this other stuff. And, you know, snowboarding wasn't in other sports too. And snowboarding was not like the entirety of who I was. That's how, that's at least what I claimed. But once that was taken away from me and those mm -hmm. contracts ended, that's really, you know, I really realized that like, that's how I identified, you know? So like, like it really was, you know? it really was like an identity. My identity was stripped from me. And like, it kind of, you know, talking about it, I'm like, man, I kind of sound like a little bitch saying it, but like the only thing that really made me feel better at the time was to, to get loaded. So like, escapism, I, right? you know, yeah, exactly. Escapism, man. And, and, uh, and so like, I think right after, like, for instance, right after my, my team manager, Dave Driscoll, who's like an awesome dude. And like, I'm sure you remember Driscoll coming down to New Zealand, yeah. part of Burton, still a super good friend of mine and always had my back super hard. I mean, he, he probably gave me the most heart. He probably fired me the most heartfelt way. And just said that you know like nike wasn't going to continue my deal and he was so sorry and like he had my back and you know it was a really good conversation and i just like i just the only you know i i got off the phone and i booked a trip to cancun and i went to mexico the next day and just proceeded to just get you know like i bought coke from like the sketchy dude in cancun and i'm like who am i you know what i mean like i'm like you know in some bathroom like the next day like you know like buying some crappy cocaine like you know, so that's, that's like one of the little few things that I started out doing just to kind of like sort of get away from the reality of like, 
now I have to figure out what's next, you know, and I did have a little bit of money saved up and I did have a 401k and stuff. You know, I will say that, you know, all that stuff, you know, eventually went away and, you know, I spent all that money and it all, you know, it's not that I spent it all on drugs, but I will say that it was, it was a catalyst of drug addiction and that lifestyle, man. And that decision-making when you're, when you're doing cocaine and drinking every single day, I mean, you just, I I don't, I would argue to say that you're not making smart decisions at that point. Gambling to that as well. And then you got profile and flex and, and it's a, it's a lethal combo, right? Like it's such a lethal combo. Yeah. And I think, and, and you know, the lifestyle I was living too, you know, when you live in a, in a, you know, apartment in LA and you have a thousand dollar car payment a month and you have credit card bills and you just, instead of like toning down my lifestyle and almost kind of, I almost kind of picked it up a little bit to sort of compensate for, um, to let people know that I was still doing okay and stuff. And, um, eventually dude, like I, you know, I tried to, I was out of snowboarding for a couple of years. I tried to get back into it and, and t- I took a coaching position in mammoth and that didn't go well. Cause I was, you know, I was loaded a lot of the time, you know, I, I got come to work hungover and I wasn't, I wasn't in tune in that, in that gig. And, you know, coaching is such a cool thing to be able to do and to give back to kids. I was just not in, and that would be such a kick-ass job to do now, but I was just not in the headspace for it, man. I was still just so missing out. And I remember like, I would see like some of my friends come to town to mammoth and like shoot or take photos with like them. And I'd have on like a name tag, you know, and I'm just be like, yeah. I'm still like, I'm still good. Like I still got it, you know? And then that was really tough for me. You know what I mean? That was super tough for me. I remember a couple of times that that happened and I was just like, dude, you know, cause you're looking at people that are the same age as you but they yeah. still got support. They still got sponsors and I don't. And like I, the way that I dealt with it, man, was not, you know, it's not what I recommend because, you know, the next two years I completely ruined my life after that. You know, I, I had, I had no money. I was broke. I, I had a fiance at the time that had just kicked me out of the house. Um, I was living out of my car that I was behind on my car payments four months and I was living out of my car and uh, I, I let my dad, let me crash them for a minute. And, um, you know, I was like demoing a bathroom. My dad's a contractor. He said, I'll just you can come do some work. My dad was like paying me under the table cash that I was just like spending on drugs. You know, so I, you know, I did get to that point where I, where I woke up one day and I was like, I wasn't like, I need to get help, but I was like, how did I get here? You know, in the last, from, from 2013, when I kind of, those sponsorships ended to around 2017, where I was, I just couldn't believe that, that I had progressed you know, I was super overweight, um, super unhealthy, throwing up blood every morning. I mean, it, it was, it was really my alcoholism had advanced into a pretty gnarly, gnarly place. And so, um, when I, I had came out to Charleston where I am now to visit my mom who I hadn't seen in like nine months and, um, my parent, my mom and stepdad sat me down and they had a, like, it, it wasn't like out of the TV show, but they, they had an intervention with me more or less, you know, they like sat me nice. down. They, we love you. You're stuffing up. You're about to die. Sort yeah. Of yeah. Yeah. They were like, you're going to die. And you're a drug addict. Did you feel, did you feel that you were going to that? Um, I knew that it was getting, I knew that it, I knew that, you know, I think that, uh, you know, alcohol, you know, being an alcoholic, it's such a slow demise, you know, I think that eventually, yeah, it would have killed me. And, and it's not like, you know, I'm so grateful to have not gotten into opiates because that really seems to be like a real gnarly, yeah, yeah, yeah. Deal, you know, because I got, you know, just this year, man, I've had five friends die of drug overdoses um, just in 2019 and 2020. I mean, it's been, it's a really regular. From opioids. 
from uh, heroin and you know opiates and stuff and there's a lot of fentanyl and this stuff these days so um, I feel like it's like the longer I stay sober the more people that I know that die and it's just it's just a part of it you know and um, I, I think that the first time it happened you know you, you're like so shocked that someone you knew passed away of an overdose but now like it happens so often it's sad to say, but I mean, it does, you are kind of expecting it at some point. And um, it, it, for me, it's sad when it happens, but it's also a, a reminder to stay sober. It's a reminder to help somebody get sober. It's a reminder to be like, a, if, if I am at all, a beacon of hope for someone that like, you know, I was, uh, I, I went from a, you know, an Olympic, you know, yep. athlete, world champion, games, um, yeah. medalist to derelict drug addict living out of my car, you know, and, um, and, and I got it's surreal to when you, th- it's, you know? it's like a flipping movie. It's so weird when you've lived it, but and yeah. you see those around you that you've grew up with and, you know, you'll probably see a photo of like you and the friends crew and you're in flipping somewhere. And then you're like, how did fast forward 10 years, how did this happen? Yeah, man, it's, it's crazy. Uh, I, I think, I think that, uh, I knew now that I have been clean for a while, I think by now, I I think if I wouldn't have got sober, I'd be dead by now. I think that, I think that it was advancing. I think that I was starting to, my taste was starting to switch a little bit. I was starting to do more ketamine. I was starting to do a lot more cocaine. I was starting to do, you know, I was starting to definitely develop a, develop an infinity for, for other stuff that, like I said, I would never, like, I didn't even like cocaine the first time I tried it. And then I'm like sitting here, like pretty much, you know, what's that? Where, where, where was it in snowboard world after parties? No, no, no. I just like, you know, I would go spend the summers with like my friends back in Minnesota and, you know, I just, I would just try to, I think I would try to get away and just kind of be a regular kid. And I think that, you know, it was always a, a here and there thing. I would do some, you know, I'd do some cocaine or take some ecstasy at a festival or whatever, take some acid or whatever. It was always a really casual deal. Like I never, you know, I, I was a regular daily weed smoker, but, um, drugs were never really, it wasn't it for me. Um, I like doing psychedelics here and there and stuff for sure. Like I would do those in the winter time and stuff, but I pretty much like kept my nose clean for the most, for the most part, like with all drugs other than weed until after my career ended. That's when I really like I met a guy, you know, I met a guy that, deli- that would deliver me cocaine in my apartment in Hollywood. I didn't have to drive anywhere. So I was like, okay, this is great. This, I mean, he would, this guy would meet me anywhere within 30 minutes anywhere in LA I mean so I mean once I met him it was it was like and and his people uh, I was like all about it I was like okay great I can have this available to me and um and then all of a sudden I was doing but it's it's so bad for you man and it just made me uh yeah it made me kind of irritable and it made me kind of cocaine's kind of a selfish drug it's like you have like the bag and you only like want it for yourself it's like you know you have you, know, you have like you know, other drugs, you're like hugging people and stuff, but cocaine is like a nasty, it's like a, it's like a dirty, it's, it's not, it's not acute. I think the appeal is, it's like, uh, it's just, yeah, it's not that rad. And, and, you know, it's just dangerous bubbles there, right? Cause that's the thing, you know, it's, it's summer, the girls are out, you're partying, you're doing the stuff, you're, you're in, you're in relaxed mode. Cause you know, when you're in the mountain, the, the hills and from that whole world, you wake up and it's, sea level and it's hot and it's sunny and you know you're still fighting with the identity of what you thought you were you know it's it's tough it's not it's a you can see how those bubbles get very dangerous you know you know a guy that knows a guy but that same guy he's got a bunch of other people within those same circles and the same thing you know yeah for sure it's it's raw it's i mean it's it's super rough 
I don't, I don't, you know, I, I'm at this point in my life. I mean, I don't blame anybody else but me. I mean, you know, I, you know, I, I have that thing where it's like, you know, I, I never, I never drank to just have a beer. I never just drank. To, I never just used to have one line or one bump. And, I, and the way I put it is this from being, a, being from an alcoholic perspective, when I was having fun, I wasn't controlling it. And when I was controlling it, I wasn't having fun. When I was trying to, when I was trying to be like, okay, don't worry. Like, I'm just going to have a couple of beers. Like it's going to be chill. Like I was, I was like miserable. And then when I was really cutting loose, I was out of control and I was, you know, doing wild shit. And, um, what, I, what I am, you know, coming out of everything and, and kind of coming out of that haze and getting help and going to rehab and all that stuff. I mean, I was so grateful to have never gotten arrested, never got a DUI, yeah. never got yeah. a possession charge. I mean, I always had cocaine on me. I always was, I was the last two years I was, uh, running, I was, um, driving drunk all the time. I mean, at least somewhat yeah. intoxicated. I mean, never like yeah. blacked out, but I was, I always had you start that. drinking like what for breakfast, lunchtime. Yeah, like, I mean, in the morning, like, you know, if I would, like, you know, I don't know, like, liquor stores open at 9, or maybe go, like, 10. I mean, there's always an excuse, right? Oh, oh you guys want to go to brunch? Oh, cool, mimosas. I mean, for me, it was, oh, I was always yeah. down to do, like, anything. Oh, you guys want to go to a volleyball game or, you know, go see a backgammon match? Like, you know, if it was, like, the most random thing but drinking was involved, I was in, you know? So What were you drinking? Uh, Just beers? Oh, I love liquor. And I mean, I, I mean, I guess it's funny because I, I never I don't like the taste of beer. I don't like the taste of alcohol. I like what it does to me. You know, yeah. And then Dan, Danny Davis and basically the whole friends who can attest to this. I'm a puker. I throw up like every time I drink. So obviously there was something early on my body telling me, hey, look, dude, like alcohol yeah. don't agree with you. But, you know, I didn't really care because as soon as I got to that point where uh, you know, two or three or four drinks in the taste kind of wears off. And then, you know, Red Bull vodka just tastes like Red Bull and whatever. But yeah, man, I, it would take, it would take the, my whole entirety and my whole being to get those first couple of shots down to just like not get in the zone. And then, and then I would be good. So yeah, I'm not one of these people that's like a connoisseur. Like I, you know, when I worked at, uh, you know, my first job sober, like I said, was at Whole Foods market as a cashier. And, um, you know, you have these people come through your line and their checkout line and like, uh, you know, they come and they'd have all their stuff, their kale, their grapes, whatever they get, they're, they're healthy. And then they'd have like a craft beer, like one, one beer. And I'm just like, where's the rest of his beers? You know, like, it just, like, that just doesn't look like fun to me. Like, I'm just like, just the one beer, like, and, and you know, my, about the outcome. It's like, that's not good. That's not getting you where you want to go. Yeah, it kind of just like makes you bloated and whatever. It's like my, my girlfriend drinks and, um, you know, she, she has, you know, she'll have like a glass of wine at dinner and drink like half of it. And I'm like, uh, when I will, yeah. Not leaving because you know I want to finish your wine. She's like, no, I mean I, I'm good. Like I don't want to, I don't want to drink the rest of it. And I'm just like, so that you know, if that gives you kind of a difference between alcoholic and non-alcoholic, I'm thinking like, dude, I would have got like a couple of different bottles of wine. Like we would have been like already those. I just would have like, no, forget the glass. Like let's just take it out the bottle. Like let's you know, forget the glass. <laughs> but it's also probably different because when you're in the snowboard world and and that. In that phase, it's you know, after party, whoever's one's chucking ten percent on the bar. You guys are just going at it, and it's just rah rah rah. Transitioning out of a after X Games after party into just a Tuesday night in LA, you know, the 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 average way that you would drink would be probably a different sort of level of of what you would consider drinking anyway, right? So it's probably tough to transition to just like 
Yeah, no, I mean, absolutely. And I, and I think that, um, I think that I, I was always cool with being the snowboard fun party guy, but then when snowboarding ended, I was just kind of the party guy. And then like, I would, I would like run into my, um, friends in LA and they'd be like, dude, so like, what are you doing these days? And I was just like, oh, I'm still like, cause like I kind of sort of tried to like keep snowboarding for another year after, like I was going to pay somebody to like film a video part for me. And it didn't really like come to fruition. And then like, I kind of got a job at like the snowboard shop that was sponsoring me and um, like kind of, but it was like, I never had a really clear answer. And um, you know, I got so far away from, you know, from being this, uh, you know, competitive goal oriented dude that like was always kind of like had goals and stuff. Um, I remember being, having a conversation with my, my, you know, she was my girlfriend at the time. Um, and, and I was, you know, she kind of saw me go through the, you know, she, we started dating when I was still on Nike, I was still on Rockstar yeah. on K2 and she saw, and she, yeah. she kind of saw me go through my whole demise, you know, um, unfortunately, you know, I put that girl through a lot, but, um, uh, we're, we're, we're cool today and, and, uh, you know, things are amicable and we'll check in every now and then and say hi. But, you know, at, at the time, uh, she sat me down and she was like, you know, um, so like Mason, like, I think it's good. Like when you're with somebody or with a significant other, I'm sure you and your wife talk about having goals and what your goals are and stuff. And I think that's a really healthy conversation to have with someone that you love and someone that you're dating or whatever. Um, mean, you know, I talk about my goals with my girlfriend all the time about what I want to do with my barber career and, and, uh, you know, maybe where I see myself next year or what I want to do, what my plans are when I actually finally get out of debt, you know, like, but, um, I remember her asking me like, Mason, what are your goals? And, um, I just remember getting so offended by her asking me what my goals were, you know, because I was just like in this, you know, agro, this agro cocaine, you know, stupor of just, uh, don't you know what I've done and don't you know who I am and blah, blah, blah. And I just remember being so offended and off put that she asked me what my goals were. And, um, it's just funny how that, you know, I didn't, I could have taken that as a moment, but, but I did, like I did, I lost sight of my goals. I, I was just kind of going through life, like day by day, just kind of chasing drugs and, you know, no just blowing through my money and not paying taxes and not doing stuff that you're supposed to do. And, uh, it's just, you know, I think with the disease, man, it just, you sort of just kind of start to neglect all personal and financial responsibility. You kind of get it's super selfish, you know, you get really self-centered and everything about you and about you. And, you know, that's not really conducive for any type of goal setting or any type of, you know, partnership with somebody either. So, mm. yeah, I, I had to, I had to, I had to look at that when I got sober and, and figure out what kind of man I wanted to be and when, who I wanted to be moving forward. So it was kind of freeing to be able to sort of blank, you know, like, like clear the slate, yeah. give myself a second chance, you know? And, and with that, a lot of people did give me a second chance. A lot of people did let me redeem myself. Um, you know, I, I, I felt like I, staying sober was the, was the main thing, but I felt like as time went on, a lot of people let me sort of redeem myself and um, kind of turn the page. It's it's just funny watching phases because, you know, you've had your snowboard phase, you've had a transition into this sort of next world and to get through safely when a bunch of your friends haven't, it's, it's a huge, um, it's a huge moment just to kind of acknowledge to yourself that you've, you've, you've safely got through where not many people have, you know, and I think that's that's massive because, you know, I've said to multiple people the 
the temptations and the danger that's around you and, and that world is gnarly. And if you can't mentally transition out safely, you can get put in some pretty bad spots, you know, and you've obviously seen it yourself. So do you feel this new focus and drive that you had for snowboarding has transitioned into this, this next world, like into, 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 but the barber world, like how did you, you went to see your mum, you hadn't seen her in what, nine months. And how did you decide to stay there? Like how, how the transition from, where you were to, to the next start of the new phase yeah so that's a that's a great question and um so moments what, like what what, was it? yeah so i i think that like it it's it has it has transitioned and i think that you know my and this is kind of why even like what i do now like with barbering like it does i i do look back and say like damn like if i didn't have those 12 years as a pro snowboarder like i may not be i may not have gone as hard or i may not be going as hard right now because like, you know, I've only been, um, you know, I've not even been cutting hair for two years and, you know, I'm pretty good at it. You know I mean? I'm not, you know, when I look at, when I look at the dudes on Instagram who I follow, who to me are like, when I look at the Terriers of Instagram and the barber world, obviously I'm nowhere near that, but like, I'm, I'm way beyond where I thought I would be at, at 22 months cutting hair. Like, so, so I've surpassed, like I've already put myself, you know, in another category than I thought I would be in. So, I mean, I'm grateful and I have gotten, uh, some good, you know, mentorship along the way and everything like that. But so I went to a treatment center, uh, in May of 2017 for six months. That's the help. That's like, you know, I've, I've never really, I don't have much. Carolina? What's that? Whereabouts? It was in South Georgia, um, outside of a town called Augusta where they have the master's golf tournament. And, um, you know, I, I, the only way that I picture rehabs growing up and stuff was like on TV, like Dr. Drew rehab on VH1 with like Ben Margera and shit. And like, yeah, yeah that's, that's, so, you know, typically these are like these 28 day inpatient, you know, they have like a pool and massage and you go on like therapy and stuff. Yeah, no, that's not what this was. Uh, my parents were like, yeah, no. Um, so I, I was kind of confused because I had got, I had tried to get sober and I had tried to get sober in 2016. I'd gone to some AA meetings. I was still, I was still drinking, but I was, I was intrigued because, um, my, my girl said that she would never talk to me again if I didn't go to AA meetings, there you go. <laughs> so I did. but I did it. I did it on, I didn't do it for me, you know? And I think that's where I, I think I had to have that experience of being not fully in, you know, not in a hundred percent. Like I was half ass in it and, and it, it really availed me nothing. I just, I, I just, I got worse. I relapsed harder. I drank more. I drugged more. And, um, you know, uh, so I, so my parents were like, no, you need to go away for a while. We have this place that you can go to. It's the only place that we're offering to be, to send you. Otherwise we're not giving you any help. So, so like, I was like, okay, cool. Well, nothing, yeah. Uh, yeah. So like I already had no options and I was already like behind on these car payments and I had no money. So, you know, my parents offering to send me to a treatment center. Uh, it was, it was $27 a day for the six months. So I ended up being about 4,800 bucks. So, I mean, that's not bad for a rehab. I mean, that's, that's really, you know, rehabs, you know, some of these nicer ones are like a thousand dollars a month. I mean, or a thousand dollars for every 30, it's like, or they're 30 grand a month. Sorry. Um, they can be super gnarly expensive. So, you know, to go to this place, you know, I went to this, you know, place called the bridges of hope and, um, you know, they, they were a bunch of guys that were serious about getting sober and a lot of them were criminals and a lot of them were on deferred prison sentences. And, a lot of them were like, some of them didn't want to be there. Some of them did want to be there. Um, I'd never been around heroin addicts and 
criminals and dope fiends before so this was a new experience for me altogether but um these were some i met some of the most like amazing dudes man like it was mm. I, I mean i was the kind of this kid from california that came in and they're like who's this like kid with Todd? like i had to i had to shave my beard and i had to shave my head i had to have there was somewhat of a militant aspect to it is that you know you had to follow some rules but it was like a sober vacation, man. They had volleyball and they had fucking, you know, TV and, you know, they had a couple nights a week and you went to a lot of meetings and you got to play pool and, you know, they let us, you know, smoke cigarettes and all kinds of stuff, you know, drink coffee and whatnot. So a lot of good, honest, clean, sober fun. And it was, uh, it was like the funnest summer I've had in years, Interesting. Um, which was, what's totally like, was not what I expected. You know, I expected to, once I got down there, I was like, dude, this is going to be, a, a, it, it, it felt like what my parents were offering me was a, some type of prison sentence. So I was like, this is going to yeah. my, my whole attitude. Six was like, months is a big commitment. Yeah. I, I, I told them I was going to do it, but I still kind of, I still was like, I still was pretty sure that I was going to smoke weed still. I was like, yeah, I'm definitely going to still smoke weed. Maybe do like some acid sometimes, but I doubt, but I didn't want to drink anymore. And I didn't want to do drugs anymore. Like I, I guess weed is a drug, but I think it's, it's up for debate when a lot of places, but I, I you know, for me, it's like, if what I, what I learned about myself is that if it's weed, there's drinking and other drugs involved. That's just how I work. You know, I can't just I would get bored of it. Like I, so, so I just, so I get, once I got my head wrapped around in, in, entire abstinence and a, and a program of recovery, I was like, okay. And so I did the six months and I got out um, and I went back to Charleston. I got out on my 30th birthday. So it was, I hit exactly six months over on my 30th birthday, which is no, which was November 10th. And, um, you know, I, I think that uh, at that time it was like, you know, I was, I just felt like I, I kind of made the decision in, in treatment just to go back to Charleston and just to kind of try to, I didn't know what I was going to do. I, I, you know, I, I hadn't looked at any of my financial aspect of anything of financial consequences or anything at all. Like, I just was like, I need to be, I need to stay sober. Like, that's all I knew I needed. I just, I need to stay clean. I can't, I was so scared to relapse. I didn't want to die. I didn't want to go back to that place. I by the time that I got out of rehab, I you know I'd lost thirty pounds. I was feeling better. I was looking a hell of a lot better. I mean, I, I'll send you my uh, intake photo from the rehab on Facebook Messenger. It's bad. Like my face is like I have like four chins. I'm like bloated oh. and shit. Oh, it's bad. It's bad. Well, I saw um, the one when you were like two thirty, and it's just like just booze face. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good. No, yeah, that's definitely it. Um, yeah. So. Uh, yeah, I'm down to like 180 pounds now, man. You know, it's like I, it's like I took, you know, I've gotten more back to that, you know, physically taking care of myself. But Charleston is, you know, it's one of the fastest growing cities in, uh, in the, in the country. There's something like 40 or 50 people that move here a day. Um, it's, it's, uh, it's growing. It's the weather's great. I mean, I hadn't lived in the same city as anybody in my family for like eight years. So, um, you know, my, my apartment now is like three minutes from my mom's house. My sister lives in a, my sister just bought her first condo. She lives five minutes away. My, my little sister, Maddie, Molly, my older sister lives three hours away. Um, I, if you would have told me five years ago, I'd be a barber in Charleston, South Carolina, and I'd be three and a half years sober. I would have told you to, to fuck off, you know, like I'm, I don't know how it kind of happened. And, and I think yeah, but that, how barber, like, how did it get you? So you back you sober. Like what's the, 
Were you, did you start cutting hair when you're at the rehab? What, what no, you... and it's funny because I probably could have, you know, like I yeah, could have. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. Yeah. yeah, like there was definitely a couple dudes that were in there who could cut and, you know, that's who gave me haircuts and stuff just because they had like been to prison and cut hair there and stuff. And, um, you know, I, I worked at Whole Foods and I was trying to kind of move up that leadership uh, chain a little bit. And uh, I, I applied for a supervisor position and I, and I interviewed really well and I didn't get it. And I was... You know, I don't think I'd ever not got something in my life. So mm. I was being a, the, having that competitive mindset, I was just devastated over this. Like I was going to get like a dollar raise and like pretty much just have more responsibility. So I don't really know what the appeal was, why I, um, you know, wanted that so bad. But when I didn't get that, um, I was, uh, you know, I was considering, I wanted to get into a trade of some kind or a craft or something to where, um, so I did know that there were some things that were important to me. Flexibility was important to me. Uh, having some autonomy was important to me yeah. and being able to be, just be me was also important to me. Just be myself. Um, I definitely got a little bit of that working at Whole Foods because I could like go to Whole Foods and wear like exactly what I'm wearing right now, like a t-shirt and a beanie and like no one could flex on me or say like, you're not, you need to shave, you know, like, so that was really nice. Um, I always had friends that were tattooers, barbers, um, you know, they, they traditionally kind of like the party. So I always kind of like kind of sort of hung around those types and I always just liked, like, I always just thought they were cool, you know? And so mm. I can't draw, so that takes tattooing out of the mix. Right. Uh, I, I, I mean, I could maybe draw like a tic-tac-toe thing. We could probably get that in, but it's just yeah. So, so I was like, okay, well, I'm not, I'm not going to be a tattooer because that's like you actually think have to have some kind of talent to do that. Um, at least Barbary, and there's like a way that you can learn it. And so I had messaged a couple of my friends. Um, my friend Kevin Collette is. Uh, He's G, he's G Easy's barber, the rapper, like goes on tour with him, all that stuff. And so I had seen how he had taken his barbering to like this level of like being on tour with G Easy. And then um, Ronnie McCoy is another dude that used to cut my hair and he cuts like Nick Jonas and Tyler the Creator and Taco and these people from Odd Future and Adam, you know, other celebrity clients and stuff. And, world, yeah. yeah. And I was just like, dude, it's that's so crazy that they were able to take it to that with barbering. Like I always thought that was so fascinating and I hit him up and I just, I told him kind of what we've been talking about, man. I'm like, I'm not snowboarding anymore. I'm, I'm like, I'm, I'm like a year sober. Like, I think I want to go to barber school. Like just, is it a bad idea? Like the school it costs, you know, I have to take out student loans obviously. So I was like, it's going to cost money. You know, should I do it? Like, I just, I need like, I mean, you guys have been doing it a long time. You guys are successful. So you think it would be a good thing for me to do? And um, they both were like so supportive and like, dude, you should absolutely do it. It's a great career. Like you'll be able, you know, you can, you can travel with it anywhere. Like you'll, yeah. you're, you're, a, you're a likable dude. You will build a clientele fast. Like just really like everything I needed to hear, they gave me. And um, I also had the girl that was cutting my hair. Who's kind of one of my mentors. She was like really pushing me to go to school after I brought it up, she was like, you would, you would freaking rock it out, you know? So I had like three or four people that were really co-signing me to go. So I finally went to know what they're doing. They know the game. Yeah. They've seen that out of the world. They're probably, under, they're probably seen on a daily basis. I got to, I got to grab my phone, my computer charger in one moment. No worries. I don't want to die on you. Um, yeah, that, that they, they've seen the world that, that you're wanting to get into. They know what that's like. 
So they, yeah, so they were really, um, yeah, so they were really, they had your back. yeah, no, so they had my back. They were like, you should definitely do it. Um, I went to school and, um, it was going to be difficult for me. And, and, uh, you know, I, I, at this point I had gotten to a place in my sobriety where I was pretty comfortable, like asking people for help and letting people know like where I was at. And I was, That's cool, you know, I was really, really struggling, you know, with, um, just like, I think you live, you live so, I lived for so long like, doing things on my own, paying my own way, never asking anybody for a handout, you know, never had to have my parents like, you know, after the age of 15 financially support me, like it was really hard to humble myself and get back to a place. And, you know, I, I grew up with a, with a homie named Nate Odio and he was, he was one of the dudes that competed against Sean White with me in USASA. He was sponsored by Maro and Billabong forever. And he was, he's a freaking super talented snowboarder. And he was always really, he's always better than me. Um, in the younger years. And we, we stayed, we've stayed friends for years i mean we've been friends. he's one of my oldest friends I and mean, we've been friends for probably 26 27 years and um if it wasn't for him like i wouldn't be a barber you know he he helped he helped me pay my rent and he paid my car insurance while i went to school so i could work part-time and be a full-time student and he's you know he lives in la he's a really successful dude he's like he's about 30 he's 35 you know does very well for himself and you know he offered to help me you know and so That's awesome he, he's somebody that, you know, he flew from LA to see me in treatment in Georgia. You know, there's only visiting hours, like four hours a week, you know, like in, on Sunday. And he flew from California and took a red eye to come see me when I was in rehab. You know, like if that's not a friend, like, I don't know what is. And I, and I, I owe him some, you know, I can't, you know, thank him enough, you know, for what he's done for me. And uh, it was really cool to see that people believed in me again. You know, mm. it wasn't just, that I was going into, but it, it could have been anything, whether it was welding oh, or it was going to, yeah, it was, it was, uh, like it was, it was cool to see that, um, sobriety and, and stuff. It did. So it was starting to reap its rewards because, you know, I was definitely one of those people that when I was still in active addiction and not snowboarding anymore, I, I was going to get my real estate license. I was going to do this. I was going to do that. I mean, I tried to get my root, tried to get my real estate license twice, you know, and I just, I would, I would be so messed up on drugs that I would try to retain this information from these online modules studying for real estate. And I couldn't remember what I was doing. And so I just quit twice, two separate times. And so I was saying and have all these grandiose ideas of things I was going to do and I would never complete them, you know? So to go from the dude that was, you know, accomplishing all these things to accomplishing nothing, you know, to, to complete this rehab for six months and then to complete barber school, I was just taking the wins where I could get them. So like, you know, I, 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 I was super grateful for the help and I, um, initially, and this just is kind of like a lesson that Nate gave me initially, I'd went to him and I said like, Hey man, can you loan me? Will you loan me 15 grand? Um, so I can go to school full time. And he's like, um, you know, cause then I won't have, I, th I think I was going to, I was trying to get loan them, get him to loan the money for me. Um, and then, I, so I didn't have to work. And so he, focus, yeah. yeah. So he said, uh, he said, no, I won't loan you the 15 grand. Um, but I'll loan you some money and you're going to work while you're in school because, you know, 
I worked while I was in school. Anyone that's been successful worked while they were in school. And you know what, man? He's like, he's like, school is supposed to kind of suck a little bit. You know, I know you've never gone to college. I know you've never done this yeah, stuff. You, school, school is going to kind of suck. And it should, because you know what, when you're out of school and when you moved on, you're going to be, you're going to be, have that fire under your ass so much more to do well and be successful knowing that you put it in, you put in the time in school. And so I took that advice and he did help me a little bit, but I did work. You know, I would go to school from eight 30 to four o'clock and then I would go work from six o'clock to 10 and I would cashier at Whole Foods. And eventually about, you know, eight months into school, I got a, um, I got a job working in the barbershop that I work in now, like as an assistant. And I would just go, I would go to the shop on my days off and I would just sit there in the corner and I would just watch, watch. I would just watch people cut hair. And I, they, they kind of knew me, like my barber Lynn knew me and they kind of knew who I was that I was like this kid in barber school, but they didn't really know like my deal. And eventually um, the owner hit me up and she's like, she, she said, you know, she hit me up on Instagram and she asked if I would come in and I would speak to her. And so I, I went in the next day after school and uh, she said, yeah, so, you know, everyone at the shop really likes you a lot. And I know that you come in here on your days off and, um, you know, I, I want to offer you a job here, you know, to be an assistant. And then when you graduate and get your license, you can start working behind the chair and start cutting. And I was like, yeah, yeah. Like, I didn't know that she was like offering me a job. I was like... <laughs> I was like, wait, oh, so you want me to, you want me to work here? She's like, yeah. So that was super cool. So, you know, I got to, I got to go and put in my two weeks at this cashier job. I was working at Whole Foods after being there for almost, I was at Whole Foods for almost two years. Um, and, you know, they knew I was in barber school and um, to be able to make a transition into the field. I mean, yeah. I was just so happy to make $12 an hour in a barber shop, just sweeping hair and cleaning toilets. I didn't give a shit. I was like, I'm in the, at least I'm in the zone. Like the, the shop was voted best of Charleston the year before. So they were, had a lot of clientele and were really busy. And so that's kind of how I got into that actual barber shop. And, um, you know, I got my license, man, and I've, I've been cutting and, you know, I, I like, the, the college that I went to, um, the, the barber college, they asked me to be, uh, on the, on the, on the advisory board for the college, for the, for the, you know, for the college as a student advisor. And, um, you know, all these things that have happened, um, you know, truly because of sobriety, um, you know, from, from the ethic of being a snowboarder has positioned me in this place now to where like, you know, I, I get to, I get to be of service to maybe some other students, man, and show them how I did it. You know what I mean? And it's, it's a different way. And I also get to be a student of the game again. I was a student of the game as a snowboarder for yeah. years and years. And I took bits and pieces from everybody, from yourself to people that I watched on videos to people that were my best friends. And, and now I get to do the same thing. And, you know, I, I, I do a lot of what I did in snowboarding. I do now. I mean, I, I message other barbers on Instagram, um, some of them I've kind of become friends with, you know, I've, I, you know, take classes online, you know, barber classes. Like I just, you know, YouTube, I mean, there's so much resources available to get to a higher level. And I think that uh, essentially like I would like to get in a position where I work for myself when I have my own studio and I have yeah. some auto true autonomy over my schedule. And, and so a, I can, uh, have my prices for my services, how I want them. So I can start doing stuff like going on snowboarding trips again. I mean, it's all in an effort to, you know, working and 
having a career is all an effort to have freedom to do what you really want to do mm. in my opinion yeah it's a um when i was on the come up it was interesting like other snowboard instructors when they were when they're on the chairlift they would look at people riding and because they had a skill set within you know, how the bodies work they would they would basically use video analysis and break things down but right. similarly as well when you look at the art of you know like you're taking a free ride line you're like okay i'm going to craft this up here i'm going to go you know method off that blah, blah 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 you can kind of like visualize and see it is the same visualization techniques and skills of you know how you plan things out for you know a half pipe run or whatever do you have you taken some of those skill sets into the into the barber world of like how you'll stage each section what lines you'll do where like like the, the process of thinking about creativity has anything transitioned from i know it's a weird question but from snowboarding into no uh no it's not it's not weird yeah dude absolutely i mean there's a but you can see it right yeah, like yeah i think that i think that it, it's you know initially when i first started cutting you know i was very transparent about like i've never cut hair before this is something totally outside of the box i mean i was in school with some kids who had been like cutting in their backyard or whatever like i never touched a pair of scissors clippers i didn't know anything about hair i never even touched i've never touched a black person's hair i've never touched a hispanic you know what i mean i only touched my own hair you know what i mean like i never touched anyone else's hair so i was just straight up like i never done this um once i got you know i think just any like anything man with time once i got a little more into it um you know i started to get more comfortable i i, I got really um i always fed off of um coaches and team managers and i always fed off honesty the best so like if i was riding bad i kind of wanted to hear it to know to do better um i kind of took that into barber school and i remember right when i started cutting my, my mentor his name is rashawn garris he, he's my age he's a master barber he's been cutting hair since he was 12. he's you know he's the director of my school the school i went to and he's also just been like a life mentor to me outside of school and i was like man i want honest feedback on my haircut like i don't want you to critique me as a student i want you to critique me as a barber critique me as if i'm already a licensed barber and so when i show you a haircut just tell me straight so for about you know the 10 months 11 months I was in school, I just got shit on, you know, yep. I mean, we were friends and, and, and we, yeah, we were friends and, you know, we would do stuff outside of school and, and it was almost kind of became this laughing thing because, you know, it was like, I was not getting better for a long time. And, um, you know, that harsh criticism is really what got me to where I am today. And now it's like, you know, I got to the point where I did start to actually produce some good work, you know what I mean? And it was like, mm -hmm. it was so gratifying, man. Like I sent him, you know, one of my haircuts, this was months ago, probably back, you know, right when I first got licensed and I sent him some of my work and he was just like, bro, I cannot believe how far you've come in such a short amount of time. Like he was, you know, like, I'm truly proud of you. It was something along those lines. And just to get that, you know, stamp of approval, but genuine validation. Yeah, genuine validation. Yeah, from someone great, who, you know, someone who's been in the game for 18 years, who's who's you know, his dad was a barber for 40. I mean, to get that from him, although, you know, he's not a Sean White or he's not a team manager at Nike or someone that's cutting your check. I mean, he's just a dude that is is a good barber and a good person. But for him to re acknowledge me and be like, bro, I can't believe it. You know, like that was, so awesome. that was that was awesome for me because 
I, I because you know you you have people that have been cutting hair for twenty years and they're trash. You know, like you have people that have been cutting hair for six months and they're great. But it's it's definitely that level of drive for sure. But then kind of on, on top of that to your question, like the visualization aspect is like, yeah, I always knew that I was a visual and a hands-on learner, kind of a combo of the both. Like both of them kind of worked for me. I like being able to see people do tricks in the half pipe on video so I could emulate that or take something that Danny Cass did or Danny Davis or, you know, Keir Dillon and try to do that um, with cutting hair. Like now that I'm a little bit more advanced, um, like I, I enrolled in an online barber academy that, you know, I pay a little monthly fee. He's a barber in the UK and um, he does like video modules of like techniques and it's like creative haircutting and stuff. And so I really get to see the process of how he's doing it and implement it. And it totally, it totally works. I mean, it's totally very similar to that of snowboarding. I mean, it, it, it is a, it is, a, there is a mental aspect to it of, you don't just go in and cut the hair. I mean, you do have to go in with a haircut and know that you're going to execute it and that you're going to do it well because there's a side of it too where if I get a new client and I've never cut your hair before, I my main thing is I want to make that person feel comfortable that I'm not going to mess their hair up, you know? Yeah. Hey, man, what's going on? What do you like about your hair? What do you hate about your hair? What do you want to do? All right, brother, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take care of you. You know, let's, you know, like I want to make them feel good about it before I go into it. Yeah, yeah. You know, dudes, I get kind of sensitive about their hair and I don't, and my hair is just like long and whatever. So they don't, they don't, they see that I don't have a good haircut because I'm like, they don't know that I'm this kind of snowboard hippie, low key, you know? Is it, is it weird? The psychology of um, work. So let's say you're at X Games, you have one minute, you go front nine, back nine, you know, front 10, cab, cab sev, whatever, and you make 30 grand, <laughs> right? And like, like just argue and say, and then yeah. you wake up and then, yeah. you know, and then, and then you're, you know, at Whole Foods and then you, you do a whole day's mm. work and it's like, oh, I made a hundred bucks. Good. How does your brain shift for what was to what, what is? You know what I mean? Like, how does it, you know, like even some of the bar tabs, I'm sure that you've thrown down in the past, you'd look at it and be like, what the fuck? Like, what was I doing? How does your brain oh reset God. to the new world of how, yeah. how the 99.9% the, the of people actually live? Like, this is something that I've... For sure. Oh man, it's been, it's been so humble. I mean, I know I've, I've said the word humbling a lot, but I mean, it's, I, I, it is, it is, man. It really is. It has been. I mean, the whole process my whole my whole journey up until this point if i had to put one word on it it's been humbling and it's like as much as i you know as soon as i feel like i think i know something about life or know something about myself it hum you know the universe humbles me again in some other aspect of it and um yeah i remember like um my very first day of working an actual job that was uh, i was at this this the shred shop that was supporting me I was like, um, I was like a, you know, I was like selling snowboards, uh, snowboards, mm. which was like cool because I, I never done sales before. And that was kind of like, man, am I going to suck at this? Am I going to be good at it? Like, I don't know. I was really, I was actually pretty good at it. But um, especially when someone like wasn't sure if they wanted to buy a snowboard, and I'd be like, look, I went to the Olympics. So just, they're like, oh, okay. I busted that out a few times, but no, it was, I remember working that first day and that first eight hour shift. And I just, I couldn't, I was like, I don't know how people do this. Like I just, I like eight hours of my sleep. Like, yeah. So I did, I, you know, I worked some odd jobs, man. I, I worked, I worked at that shop. 
I worked at um, I, I caddied at a at, I worked at a couple golf courses. I caddied for a caddy company in San Diego, uh, caddying at like Torrey Pines and a couple courses. I drove Uber. I drove Uber for that was my, my that was like my last job before I got sober was driving Uber and that was that was ridiculous. Um, shouts out to all the Uber drivers, man. That's not an easy job. Mm. People are like, oh, this looks kind of fun to be an Uber driver. No, it sucks. It's not fun. Um, that was my perspective anyway. Um, but yeah, but, but, you know, I think that, uh, I was really torn up about this when I got out of rehab. What am I going to do with my life? That was a conversation with my mom, you know, who's my mom's, you know, 30 years sober at the time. She's been through the whole process and, you know, has created a, such a nice, awesome life for herself. And she, I was like, I just don't know what I'm going to do because I was, you know, I, I just, you know, I need to do something. I have to, I don't know what I want to do for my life, my career. My mom's like, listen, you don't need the job right now. You just need a job, you know? And I saw, I was like, get all right, okay. get it wrong. Uh, get you know, it. yeah, you just need a job. Like, don't worry about it. You just need a job. So I went and I had an interview at Whole Foods, an interview at, uh, you know, Starbucks was the other spot that I interviewed at. They both hired me on the spot. I chose the Whole Foods gig. Um, you know, my stepdad insisted that I put in my resume that I'm a Winter Olympian at the top of it. He said, like, that's always, he's like, that's always the first thing you put on your resume. Yep. <laughs> because he said, even if I'm unqualified for the job, I'll most likely always get an interview because people want to hear about the Olympics. So I said, okay. like I'll do it. And so, um, yeah, so I did get an interview and I did get hired everywhere that I did interview, um, for when I had that in there and I, people always did want to know about the Olympics and stuff. So, um, yeah, no, oh yeah. It comes up all the time. (laughs) So yeah, living in that reality of going, of going and making $12 an hour, um, at Whole Foods, that was really my first honest job where I wasn't spending money on drugs. I wasn't spending money on drinking, you know, oddly enough, man, I actually had money left over at the end of the week. I had money to pay rent. Um, I was, you know what I mean? Like I was actually felt like an adult, you know, it was hard. I mean, I, you know, am grateful for being, uh, working in customer service for that long, um, at that kind of volume, working in a grocery store, being around people that much. I feel like being, uh, you know, I was, you know, I was a cashier and then I was a customer. I, I was a team mentor, which is basically a fancy word for saying like, I was a customer, I trained people in customer service, how to give good customer service. So, you know, all that stuff at Whole Foods, I think the, you know, the more valuable thing that I took away from that was how to give good customer service. So, you know, transitioning into barbering, being a barber, now I'm doing something that I love to do that I'm passionate about and I'm giving customer service. So I'm, I'm giving an experience. I'm providing, yep. Yeah, I'm giving an experience and providing. I get to kind of hit that. Um, I get to check that box of my creative outlet. I get to check that box of flexibility. I get to check that box of showing up to work and being me, being Mason at work. I don't have to be a cool guy. I don't have to be Mr. I'm sponsored or anything like that. Or I need to pick up the bar tab or I need to like impress a girl with a bag of Coke or something. Like I can just be me. And um that has been like really rewarding because to see how, how fast I've been able to build a clientele has been the real, like, I mean, I think everyone has different levels of like how they would view themselves successful. I think, I think for me at this point in my life, it's uh, what's, what's my uh, retention rate on my clients and how, you know, are my clients happy with the work that I'm doing? And 
and like I said, how, are they coming back to me? So like, you know, I, I have about like an 85 to 90% retention rate, meaning like the people that come and get their haircut for me one time, about 85, 90% of the time are coming back. That other 10% are usually people that are just visiting Charleston on vacation. Maybe they're in town for a wedding. Um, there's maybe one or two there that maybe I'm not the person for them and that's totally okay. But, um, and then, you know, I'm, I'm booked out, you know, my books are busy. So, um, and you know, they seem happy with the work that, that is being done. So I figured like, all right, cool, man. I'm, I'm not even been licensed a year. And like, I'm, I'm a success story so far, you know, like I'm busy. I'm, my clients are happy. Like I, I I'll go play golf with some of my clients. They'll take me golfing. I'll, 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 I'll you know, DM them or we'll, they'll, Hey man, I was thinking about this and I thought I'd send you this meme. Like, so it's cool to have a rapport with people that you're doing business with that. It's not like, you know, even, uh, during the pandemic, I was cutting a little bit of hair on the side just to kind of go see like my, my VIP clients that are just cool dudes. And, um, but yeah, making an honest paycheck, um, not that, uh, snowboarding wasn't, um, you know, I think, yeah, my first year at Whole Foods, I think I, I made a whopping like 16 K which is like about half of what I would make in a month as a snowboarder. So it's been, yeah, it's been really tough, but uh, it was really tough to adjust. I think now, you know, I'm, I'm getting out of, I'm dealing with some financial stuff, um, you know, on the, with, with taxes and stuff like that. And I'm getting it sorted out, but like, you know, my, uh, my girlfriend, like she co-signed on a loan for me to get a new car this year, you know, cause I'm rebuilding my credit too. And like, that was awesome. You know, it's like, I got people in my corner, man. Like she didn't need to do that. You know, she, she's a little bit more financially stable than me and has her shit together. And, um, you know, my car was like, you know, kind of whatevs and, you know, she co-signed on a car for me to get a, a new Audi. And like, I was super pumped because I, although I don't make the money I used to, I still got expensive taste. You feel me? So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, um, the cool thing is, you know, when you, it takes a while to find your identity as you outside of what you were known for. You know, like one of the, I, I clearly remember with, with wife and me, when we moved up to Auckland, she got into nursing school and I was kind of, I guess coming out of the snowboard world for a minute. And I just said, I was like, I don't want to be known as the snowboard guy. I just want to be Robert. You know, I don't want to have the, the brush of something that you did to define who I am as an individual. It's one thing that I did do. I like probably same to yourself, you know, you're still a snowboard, you can still shred. I'm sure you still, probably got it you know a little back seven the bag maybe if you you know if you if you wanted but it's to so many people get lost in who they were um that they don't transition to who they actually are as a person for the future so the fact of you know for you to get to that point it's taken you a while to do it but the fact that you can say you know you can just roll up and be you you can be creative you've got your time you know without going through the stuff that you did i don't know if you're probably right you probably wouldn't be here the yeah, path that you're going down, you'd, you'd probably be dead. So the fact that you can safely have transitioned to be happy with who you are outside of the title of feeling that you were that guy, I think it's it's a massive and huge accomplishment, man. So you, if people don't say to enough, I think it's I've seen many that have gone the other way. So you should genuinely be proud, mate. It's, re it's really cool to get to that point where you can be happy with who you are outside of something that you just did. You know. Thanks, man. I appreciate it. I think you know. I think that. uh when I, I, you know, I think for a while when I was um, 
kind of early in this whole sobriety thing, I was definitely in this like morbid reflection of like, oh, I just, I wish I would have done this different. I wish I would have saved more money. Or maybe if I didn't put all this money into friends, or maybe if I wouldn't have, you know, bought that car or like gone on that trip or whatever. But I think that, um, you know, all those things had to be necessary. All those things had to happen for me to get to a place of where I was, you know, where I found some freaking humility, man. And, um, yeah. I, you know, it's just, it, it's, it happens different for everybody. And for me, it was, um, getting sober and being able to, um, just, you know, I think at some point, if you transition out of a career being an athlete, at some point there needs to be a, a perspective shift that happens. And for you, it's like, I don't want to be known as Rebet the snowboard. I just want to be known as Rebet. And like, I get that. And I, for me, for me, it was just like, I was like, I just want to be, you know, and initially I wanted to be a, a good, I wanted to be, um, a good son. I wanted to be a better brother. I wanted to be employable. I mean, these are all things that like I was not. So initially yeah. the bar was set really, really low. Like I, I really had the bar set low as to what I wanted for my life. Um, I think that if I would have made a plan for my life at zero days sober, um, I would have definitely sold myself short because so many amazing things have happened since then. Um, there's been some bad stuff that's happened, but you know, I, the way that I've gotten through it is like with a lot more dignity, you know, like I deal with it a lot better. And, you know, I have, I have a network of people around me that know like what's going on. And, you know, when something had, when something bad does happen, like, you know, my, my, um, dad, my mom and stepdad went through a pretty gnarly divorce earlier this last year. And like, it was like a difficult thing for my family and stuff. And, you know, I was able you know, I was like, dude, you know, I was able to be there sober, like for my little sister who was like kind of in the mix of it. And, um, you know, just like there for my mom and there for like my family and stuff. And like, you know, if I wasn't sober, like I wasn't totally checked out, you know? And so, um, that's just one example of, of where I've been able to have that shift and, um, you know, not live as selfishly. And I think that, that that's where I got so consumed in, uh, in my, in my career, because, um, you know, snowboarding and, and, and stuff, you know, it, it is a selfish you know, it is selfish lifestyle, you know, and I'm sure that you can agree with this. I mean, it really, I mean, especially when it comes to relationships, family, girlfriend, whatever. I mean, if you're not on board with me being gone 10 months out of the year and me basically doing whatever I want all the time, then like we should, we, we shouldn't date, you know, like that's, and that's a tough, you know, that's tough to lay down like to somebody where, where a real, where a real relationship in my experience is definitely about compromise and it's a give and a take and it's a 50, 50 deal. And, um, you know, obviously I, I wasn't living a lifestyle that was conducive to really any, um, functional relationship and stuff. So, um, yeah, man, I think that all those things, even the bad things, they had to happen. Like they absolutely had to happen in order for me to get to a place of being, you know, being humble, find some humility, start fresh. And, and then, you know, for the, my consequences, take, take it on the freaking chin and try to move past them and right my wrongs and, and, uh, you know, move forward with a little bit of dignity and, and also be able to like, with that same, you know, in that same deal, not be too hard on myself, you know, about it. Well, it's, you know, you're talking earlier about, you know, Kevin is going out there and he's doing, you know, the speeches and the bits and pieces too. The reality is, is the story from, you know, on the come up, Olympian, millions of eyeballs on you to, you know, in a, in a car and essentially homeless and flipping drug addict and almost dead, you know, the, the redemption tour of what you've gone through personally is 
is a a huge story you know like i think i know that there'd be a lot of people who have struggled with any type of addiction or stuff that could you know see the struggles that they they have as just you know not common folk but you know i'm 99.999 percent of people haven't been to the olympics they haven't been a professional that's traveled around the world they haven't seen the places that you've you've seen and stuff as well so you know i, I wouldn't underestimate the the potential opportunity for, for for change and inspiration that you could easily do to so many others that do it because you know the stories and the stuff that you've gone through is, is real and, and a lot of people could definitely re relate to it as well. So I wouldn't say yourself short in the fact of, you know, there's, there's a pretty amazing story which could help many, many, many more people than you're potentially just thinking of, you know. So don't, just because you're, you're starting the new game fresh, don't think that there's a ceiling to that as well. You know? Yeah, thank you, man. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I look forward to, you know, uh, you know, more opportunities and stuff and, and, and very open-minded too, you know, to anything comes up and uh yeah i mean i i pull inspiration from you know i really used to only pull it from snowboarding you know and now i pull inspiration from so many other areas i mean that's that's one thing that i, I you know i i think that social media definitely gets a, a negative rap in a lot of ways and i think it just kind of depends on like how you utilize it right um i i pull so much like good shit off of social media man that i get inspiration from that i get help from well, it's um, the bar it's you that's know? what you're saying that's the that's the um yeah that i can when you're creative and you're artistic and 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 creations in, in your blood that inspiration of seeing others gives you a more of a challenge it's the bar being set you know and i, I think you're probably in the same boat where the more you consume and and take on through osmosis or anything that you you see is going to give you new ideas for inspiration for other stuff too right 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 mm. absolutely dude this has been a good, great chat, man. It's Dude, it has been, man. Thank you so yeah. much. No, I didn't, I didn't. I didn't think we'd go this 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 deep on it, but I I know that you know we're similar ages. We've been through similar stuff. You to a a, a a higher degree of you know execution and success and and some pretty dark spots as well. But I think it's important for conversations like this as well especially for what you've gone through because you know my lane's been different your lane's been different everyone's got their own little piece and i think when you're so consumed in a in a small little bubble of what you think that reality is there's such a disconnect from the real world because you're just so in it at the moment that right to when we first started the conversation you know, you'll you'll see something back and it seems like a dream like, yeah we're, it's just like i i was there like i said you know and so you know that journey is all part of it too so i think yeah. for, for you as well it's cool to get to a spot where you can be happy with the, the new you that's that's safe and that's that's got that drive back again that's got a bit more you know inspiration and juice that's that's here and it's present yeah i mean going down to you know we go down to new zealand every summer for like two months you know i just kind of figured like that would always be like that like oh we're just like <laughs> July, like going to flying into queenstown i'll be there till september mid-september so like yeah should we rent like where should we stay like i gotta hit up i gotta hit up all the boys and like let them all know i'm coming to town sometimes i was like not that stoked to go down to new zealand and be like oh it's like such a far trip and now i'm like I'll like see photos on my laptop or something or a Facebook wearing pop up from like Wanaka. And I'm like, wow, it's like the sickest place. One of the sickest places I've ever been to. Like <laughs> I would give my left nut to go back to Wanaka, <laughs> go back to Queenstown, you know, go to, go to Jindabyne and see Tom Pelly and my buddy, you know, like, 
you know so it's just it's funny how it's just you know when you're in it you're like oh it's kind of a drag i shouldn't have to travel so much now i'm just like trying especially being in you know what we're in now i'm like i can't wait to go anywhere you know <laughs> anywhere. Yeah. but um but yeah man obviously it's it's uh i think it, it you know everything kind of shape shifts uh, you know i think that i think there's many snowboard trips in my future and many more you know mountains and you know snowboard trips i think it just looks a little different you know and i think that yeah. I, you know, this last year was my first year getting back into snowboarding after three years off and uh it was my first year that i had to buy snowboard gear um you know 32 gave me a 32 gave me a pro form and my my buddy rich who's a rep for rome gave me a pro form for rome so i mean I was I was stoked. I was stoked to I was actually I was cool with it. Like I was just stoked that like I to have any support, you know, like Ethica my, my buddy Danny Evans at Ethica just sent me a shit ton of underwear and boxers and 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 socks from Ethica and they're one of my sponsors for so long. And just to have any, you know, my, my buddy AJ just started this company municipal. I'll give them yeah, a yeah, shout. That's cool. Yeah. Um they're like a they're like an active wear active wear company and he and he was working in golf at um Callaway. And he sent me stuff, you know what I mean? And just like, I'm just like sick, dude. So, I mean, it's like, there's the, the support and the vibe is like still there, which is, which is awesome. Um, well, it, they layer up, right? They get a bit yeah. older they, and, and you've got legacy of those relationships. For sure. Like, you know, I was able to get like new, I got like a full new shred set up. I think like out the door, I was, I got like outerwear boots, binding boards. I think it's been like 400 bucks or something, 500 bucks maybe for like all new gear. Like I was pumped and I got to go snowboarding and, after like the first turns again the first turns were um it, it was a little dicey the first day uh we went back up by the end of the season like i, I did throw a back seven i hit some yeah, rail yeah. like Still i got like, i hit like you know i hit the you know what it is i hit like the back seven the back one the front three cab five like everything back to regular like you know yeah um but it was but it was and oddly enough, that was like the last day I got to ride before like all the ski resorts closed down because it was right in March. But um, I was supposed to go on a trip to Bald Face with my buddy that helped me out oh. barber school. My buddy Nate yeah. that helped me get through barber school. He put a whole trip together for Bald Face, rented out all the Bald Face. There's supposed to be like 40 of us going and Canada closed the borders like three days before the trip. So that was kind of unfortunate. Um, you know, I don't know if you saw, but bald face already canceled all their 2021 operations for the year. So that's yeah. kind of a trip that's, you know, hopefully going to happen at some point, but yeah, no, it was, it, it was, I was cool with taking a break from snowboarding to do all this other stuff in my life too. I, I knew that, look, man, when you don't get paid to snowboard anymore, it should cost money. Let's just put it out. That shit ain't cheap, dude. That shit ain't cheap. Snowboarding is like $107 for a day pass. What the? Yeah, no, for real. Snowboarding is a little, snowboarding is like the low key rate for any, for any kid that thinks he's a dirtbag snowboarder. You're not, you are not a dirtbag. You, you probably trade Bitcoin. You know what I'm saying? Like, like this is a rich kid sport, you know? So once I, so what happened was, um, real quick is, you know, I, I got in touch with the guy that runs one of the resorts up in North Carolina. And we knew a couple of the same people and he, he very kindly gave me and my girlfriend free season passes to come ride, you know, in exchange to uh, throw, shout them out on my Instagram story when I go up yep. there and ride. And I was like, done, dude, of course, that's, that's legit. It's this cool little family owned mountain. It's kind of like an East coast, big bear, like the, in North okay. yeah, they have the chairlifts. They have a ton of rails, a ton of, you know, little jumps and like a couple of medium sized jumps. And it's so fun. It's like a 20 second lap. Like it's so sick. 
So um, my buddy Rick Wilkinson hooked me up with a season pass, man. And I so it's like I got the pro form on the gear and I got the free season pass. So, like, it all kind of lined up. So I was able to go shred, like, a handful of times this last year. And, like, you know, what I did realize after being away is, like, how much I love snowboarding, how much I missed yeah. it. And how much I not only I love it and I miss it, but how much I need it in my life. I do need it in my life. I mean, that's very evident after taking three years off from 2016 to 2019 that like I can't I can't live in a space where snowboarding is not a part of what I do. It just won't work. So the, the bit that's really interesting is when I felt for a while when when I was shredding it, like Kenny, we talked about it sort of felt like a job. It's like, oh, I've got to go up the shoot thing or this blah, 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 blah. It felt like work. And the day that I could go up and I literally had no weight, no pressure, no sponsors, no bullshit, no nothing, and I could just create and go, it was probably one of the coolest, best things ever. Um, yeah. No it, – it felt freedom for the reason why you actually started it, you know. Yeah, you feel weird, isn't it? Yeah, it's super. It's hard to explain. I don't have it's, to go like checking with my team manager. I don't have to like tag this person and like get like the, yeah. you know, I mean, social media wasn't that, you know, social media was kind of just coming into the picture when my career, my career was winding down. So companies yeah. didn't really give a shit if you tagged them and shit or not. They're like, what is a tag? You know, like we don't, what's that? You know, like, that? yeah, yeah, it is. I, I, man, I, I agree with you, man, to not have to check in or post something or whatever or you know it, it is nice you know for sure and it's cool it validates the the, the purity of where it started from you know the, the purity oh, of sure. like getting to the top i still remember like you know the first days you set up the nb and you strap in like okay where are we going to go what are we going to do let's go you know like just pure freedom and creativity again to it, it's cool that you can still have that um that passion be so pure and still be in the, in the bones. Cause you know, it means that you're going to be shredding forever at some, some way or another. hundred percent. Awesome. Yeah. Dude, this has been awesome, man. Yeah, I man. Really appreciate the time. Dude, we've, this has Thank been like you. almost two, two hours and 40 minutes. Dude, it's funny because, because I did a, I did a podcast with um, Simon Dumont. It was like a pro okay. skater and stuff. And uh, yeah, yeah. we ended up talking for like three hours. And like, he was like, yo, yeah. man, this went so long. Like, I'm like, dude, I'm sorry. But like, the, he, we just got into so much stuff and uh, he ended up having to like break the podcast up into two separate parts and stuff. <laughs> he was like, yeah, like I didn't, I didn't plan on like talking for three hours. And I was just like, no, man, it's cool. Because I just feel like, I, but I feel like for you too, actually being a snowboarder and, a, and not just a snowboarder, but a pro snowboarder who is like, you know, sponsored and doing it like at a high level as well. Like there's a lot of, commonality there so i feel like mm. there's a lot to touch on you know and some of the stuff was cool that you already kind of knew and you know had uh you know like the sean white stories and stuff like that and you kind of whatnot but no that was and you know that was awesome i'm super stoked you hit me up and it was really yeah, good to it, chat and i'm, I'm glad a, i think one of those things when you've both been been to a space and you've seen the world you've got it's like you know as many books as i read or as documentaries no one I, I can never know what it's like to to to, to go to war for my country regardless how right. many, you know and regardless how many people try to talk to me about whatever they've got no idea what it's like to strap in and you're about to flip and go off off the off the big lung at snow park and you got to try and stomp it to get a shot for a cover or whatever the thing is right they will yeah. never have they will never understand it and the fact of you know when 
there's a mutual respect because you've both seen, you've been to a place which others haven't. It's cool when there's those commonalities, but you also, you know, I guess we've aged out of it <laughs> um, yeah. safe, safely in, in, some, in some ways. I think that's, it's cool to, to kind of not compare war stories, but just to see the headspace of, you know, pretty similar to talking about the Mike Tyson thing with like where the headspace was at that time to where they then are at the future. I think it's, um, it's cool to go there for a second, which was pretty awesome. So no, it's been, been, been a good chat, Mason. Yeah, man. You're safe and it's stoked. As, I don't know. I've got to come down and check, check out the, the vibes there on the, 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 um, on the East coast, man. Yeah, you too, like man. Anytime you want to come, Charleston's a dude, Charleston's a great food. There's, it's a big foodie city. So there's yeah. a lot what of really, got there? there's a lot of big restaurants. We got the ocean. We got freaking heat. It's nice and humid here. You know what I mean? We got, you know, good fishing boat. I mean, that's, I mean, it's, you know, I, I chill a lot, you know, like, I mean, I cut hair and hang out and go get tattooed and, you know, just kind of, <laughs> you know, you take a dog on a walk, you know, like, but, uh, you know, I hang with family a lot, man. And it's just, yeah, my, my cool. priorities and stuff are my, yeah, my priorities in life are so much more basic, I guess, than they used to be. I mean, I still, you know, I, I did finally get to a place where I felt comfortable, like going out to bars again and being sober. Like it, it took a little while for me to like get comfortable yeah. in my own skin and, you know, whatever. But like, you know, like what I realized too is like no one cares that I don't drink like club soda lime no one even knows or cares and shit, yeah. but for me it was kind of just getting comfortable knowing that like I wasn't missing out and stuff because you know what like not all my friends are sober I have a lot of friends that drink I have a lot of friends that like to party it's cool there's no judgment and, and I don't want to not hang out with them um, because I'm sober, you know what I mean? So how do I get back to a place where I can be enjoying life doing stuff? So yeah, we got a couple like semi-pro sports teams here. We got a soccer team that's, uh, it's like MLS division two. We got, a uh, you know, a baseball team. That's like a feeder team to one of the pro teams. We got a minor league hockey team. We got some stuff, you know, there's stuff that goes on, but no, like, and then we got, other cities that are close by Charlotte, Atlanta, you know, all of Florida, Georgia, you know, all this stuff is close by. So, but this is Southeast, man. It's, it's different down here. You don't see a lot of people that look like me for sure. It's definitely like a different <laughs> vibe. Yeah. Yeah. Like definitely old Southern man, you know, doing their damn thing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Drinking bourbon and friends. <laughs> Uh, Mace, this has been awesome, bro. I really appreciate the time and um, Thanks, some man. of the things are at for you, bro. This has been yeah, real. bro. It's been awesome. We'll talk anyway, to you soon. Brother. In touch. For sure, man. All right, brother. Have a great day. Peace. Peace. How was that? That was awesome. Uh, Mason Aguirre, uh, snowboard days from way back, been th around the world and back many a time. And call to Sam uh, safe and sound. This has been the longest interview I think I've ever done, almost three hours, and probably one of the coolest. So I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Um, and awesome to see him safe, sound, and um, and doing good stuff. So.